Hello, Rounding the Earth viewers. Uh, I'm your host, Matthew Crawford. And today, uh, wow, this is just a gigantic story. Um, and I didn't realize at first how gigantic it was. So I was trying not to pay attention to it because I've got so much pandemic research going on. But um, eventually I came to the conclusion that this is, you know, you know, maybe one of the largest stories in the history of the financial world. And uh, I'm going to start by saying, you know, I do think that we are in the middle of a, a, a sort of an unspoken world war. I call it World War E for economics, but uh, maybe maybe it should be World War F for finance. Um, but so the cryptocurrency world is kind of, you know, taken over in some ways. We're, we're kind of past, you know, the most recent uh, run up in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, but um, it, it's it's the way that this is ending in this cycle. It's kind of four year cycles to cryptocurrency world, and uh, that's a that's a topic for another day if you're not familiar. But um, the the way this is ending is with uh, the biggest story, in, you know, in years in, in cryptocurrency land. And uh, I'm I'm going to try to go through as much of this as I can tonight. And and uh, during this um, during this podcast, I'm going to have a friend uh, Mike join me. And he has some uh, perspectives and probably some additional knowledge to what I'm going to present. But I was up all night last night, um, in addition to work I had to do today, putting together a slideshow. So let me bring that up. I'm going to share that now. And by you know, this is this is going to be, you know, perhaps a, a much larger presentation than than you might be able to imagine uh, on this topic. I mean, it really is just you know that huge, but. Um, I'm going to try to go through a fair bit of this, at least before Mike joins us and explain the story, because this is a story that involves the entire global financial system, potentially. It's that large and it may involve murder and it may involve the pandemic. Uh, it may have been the motivation behind the pandemic. So um, I'm going to get started in a couple of minutes, but we're still, we're kind of getting going here. And you know, if you enjoy this show, if you think you think that, you know, I, I think we're going to present a lot of new truths to a lot of people here. So, you know, if you have a if you have a friend who might be interested, um, whether they're interested in the cryptocurrency world or they're interested in the pandemic and sort of the global realities of all that, uh, now would be the time to go tap them on the shoulder, you know, maybe send them here uh, either to our Rumble channel or um, to Rockfin or YouTube or wherever we are streaming to right now. Um, and understand that I've got a slideshow here, so I'm trying to use all my screens. I'm gonna do the best that I can, but there's just gonna be a whole lot. <laughs> um, so this is a story, you know, on the surface, this is a story about um, a cryptocurrency exchange, FTX, and a hedge fund cryptocurrency trading operation, Alameda. Um, but it, it's going to go much deeper than that. And I, there's no way in the world I could, you know, cover this in a full slideshow in one day. So I may do this a second time down the road in the future. We'll see. But, um, you know, let's get started. Let's take a look. Before we go too far, though, I'm going to talk, I'm going to say something about Bitcoin specifically. And, um, and, and this is separate from a lot of the fights that go on in the cryptocurrency world. But um, the reason that Bitcoin is interesting is because it could take over as the global reserve currency because it is a scarce 
like gold, decentralized, censorship-resistant, cryptographically safe asset that competes for monetary supremacy. And, uh, and it, I, I run a Bitcoin education group that has almost 200 people in it. Um, one thing I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pat the entire community on the back because there were people in there who started talking about this very quickly once the, you know, once FTX started to collapse um, and said, you know what, there's, there's exchange risk. And I always preach to the people in the education group, you must consider that there is always exchange risk. You shouldn't be keeping, you know, your cryptocurrency uh, on exchanges unless you're trading it for an asset, you know, be, be brief if you need to. Um, but, you know, decentralization means not your keys, not your coin. So when you have it parked somewhere else, it's not really yours. And later on, I'm going to talk about the gold markets and how that relates to the gold markets and how um, the, entire, the entire gold market has been suppressed for many years because all that gold is parked and, you know, most lots of that gold is parked in just a couple of vaults, right? So, so much of it is tucked away that when you're buying a gold paper asset, you don't even know if, you know, how many times that, that chunk of gold has been sold. Like, can you take delivery if the world starts to move toward gold? Um, so if you don't have it in hand, you shouldn't consider it to be yours. Um, but also, you know, we're, we're beginning a serious monetary inflation environment, right? Over the last uh, little over three years, uh, the U.S. has, you know, well, well, the Federal Reserve has printed, well, maybe I should say along with the Treasury because it feels like they're, they're one in the same these days, but, you know, $11, $12 trillion with a global currency supply that's under $100 trillion. That's enormous. That is a lot of the money supply. So, um, you know, the, all, the, the dollar banking complex, it looks weaker by the day. And, you know, you have to wonder, is this the motivation for war? Because war is very profitable, especially for those who have the kinds of assets that uh, will appreciate while lots of other assets are being destroyed, right? So there's lots of profit to be made in war and, and just, you know, profit off of making the weapons and the, the munitions and how all that's done. But the cryptocurrency world may engineer. Hey, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to say, you know, I'm, I'm essentially very close to the big Bitcoin maximalist dot, wherever you want to place that on the chart. Uh, I call myself beyond Bitcoin maximalist because I do believe that there will be uh, creation of value uh, in the future, primarily through uh, other cryptocurrencies other than Bitcoin. However, <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, especially in the near term, um, the vast majority of the value proposition of cryptocurrency is just Bitcoin. It's just in being able to, you know, bank for yourself and not be dependent on the entire global you know, military banking complex, uh, however you might think of it. Um, but yeah, almost everything outside of Bitcoin is a scam. Uh, I don't want to say everything. I'd have to really go look at some things to, to find out for sure. But uh, in, in the sense that it's just not a good investment at the very least. It may just be directly a scam. Uh, I think you know, a whole lot of them are. So you know that's what I that's what I preach my Bitcoin education group. And so people listened when uh, when the more experienced uh, Bitcoiners spoke up and said you should probably get your crypto off exchanges. Uh, one person pulled seventy thousand dollars worth off. Uh, so got it all out. Several other people mentioned to me that they pulled some out of uh, FTX specifically, uh, if not other exchanges. So, you know, it looks like a six digit amount of money was saved by our Bitcoin education community. Um, and, and I say that because that's a lesson on its own, you know, have a community, 
uh, learn, you know, keep learning, listen to the people who are most experienced, who aren't trying to sell you anything, you know, nobody in that community, um, me or the moderators, uh, I created the community, none of us make money off of it at all. Um, you know, it, it just is what it is. And at the very least, we, we learn more by trying to explain it better. So I wanted to say that before we, we jump into the things that come next. Uh, and, you know, I will say, you know, the NFT world, you know, silly as it is, uh, one day that'll probably be real for like video game items and stuff. But, you know, again, that's out in the future, but I think it does relate to how it is this story progresses. And we'll talk about NFTs just a little bit later in that regard. But now let's, let's start talking about uh, where we're going here. Here's the the key character in the story, <clears throat> at least the upfront story. I don't know about the behind the scenes story, but this is Sam Bankman Fried, and um, he was uh, head of the FTX exchange. Now he he built the FTX exchange and Alameda Research Trading Firm. He was, uh, I guess he, he graduated from MIT, maybe around 22, went to Jane Street Capital. And um, um, I, I used to send uh, Jane Street a lot of their interns and eventually uh, future traders. Now, I may talk about that a little bit more later, but uh, you know, I know that you know, these are all very smart people there. Um, I talked to somebody who said, yeah, Sam was a good trader. Um, he's the son of two Stanford law professors. And that, that, that's sort of interesting. That sort of stands out in sort of the resumes that I've been reading online. You know, when, when your resume is your parents, I, I feel like, I feel like there, there's something wrong uh, there, especially, you know, if you're talking about somebody who's supposedly like the, the richest 30 year old in the history of the world, at least up until recently. Um, but, you know, is being heralded as like the next JP Morgan uh, very, very quickly, overly quickly. Uh, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and explain this too. I mean, here, here was his trading history up through about five years ago. Um, yeah, okay, so he, he was doing okay at, uh, at Jane Street. He was a good trader. And uh, he, he recognized uh, that there was exchange arbitrage that was hard to take. And here's what I mean. In the US, you know, Bitcoin was selling for 10,000. In Japan, it was selling for 11,000. I should say selling, buying and selling. And that's where, you know, the market had it. And uh, the reason for this, it, it's, it's a little bit difficult to explain overall, but you couldn't trade on the Japanese exchanges unless you were in Japan. Right. So you had to like set up a, a multi-continental operation in order to move enough money around to make this arbitrage, to buy Bitcoin on the U.S. market and sell it on the Japanese market. So um, once he once he figured out all the steps to, to do this, you know, he had moved away from Jane Street Capital. He said, OK, I'm going to commit to this trade. He, he saw the trade and he thought he could do it and he did it. So he was making a million dollars a day, which is, you know. That's great. You know, when, when you uh, exploit a flaw like that, when you figure it out, that's what that's what the best of trading is. And up until that point, he was playing uh, what I call trading games, which are played at firms like Jane Street and Susquehanna. Uh, and that's and that's where I worked uh, years ago. Or one of the places I worked um, where I learned the option trading atmosphere. Um, so moving on, let's see. So, yeah, so you can see how quickly his wealth grew. And, you know, how did he go from making like a million dollars? So he, I heard he made like 20 million off of doing that arbitrage. And, you know, first it was like a million dollars a day, but that, that gap closes, right? But it, it's it's such a good trade. It is worth talking about. And, and that may be the kind of person that you want to, you know, build a trading firm around. But the amount of money that got thrown at him was just enormous. Um, 
And so, you know, we want to explore a little bit, you know, why that is, but it, it, it got to the point where he was sort of, you know, seen as a character in a different light, right? Like he could speak and talk about something and it would be considered important, even if it was just an absolutely ordinary conversation. And here's an example. Um, you know, uh, when, when Musk takes over Twitter, uh, Sam suggests to control spam by having uh, cryptocurrency payments for posting. And this is something that's been talked about for years. In fact, um, the person that I'm having on later tonight, Mike, when he joins us, uh, I first learned about Web 3.0 applications in production uh, uh, from him four years ago. He was uh, experimenting with a crypto payment to read blog. Uh, so, yeah, that was four years ago. And, and Twitch. Twitch is a Twitter clone that's been around for a number of years. I don't know when it started. I think I got on it a year and a half ago played around with it a little bit, but there's just, you know, not enough people partially because it's, it's not, you know, one of the main cryptocurrencies that drives it. It's, it's one of the Bitcoin, um, uh, forks, uh, BSV, and it just hasn't been popular enough, but it's not like the idea was anything new. I mean, there are thousands of people doing it already, right? There are people creating web 3.0 sites. So, but, but that's the kind of personality he became that he could say something that was just ordinary in, in the cryptocurrency technology environment. And, you know, it would get a headline, <laughs> you know, so it's a little bit odd, you know, however that works. So, um, well, <laughs> so he, he winds up, um, so he raises this money in Alameda and they start trading and I, you know, they're, they're probably doing well, given that they were good traders. I, I will say this, the cryptocurrency trading environment is harder than the kind of things he was doing. He was doing like ETF trading, but whether you're doing ETF trading, index arbitrage or option market making, all those are games and they take, you know, some skill to master and everything, but the cryptocurrency trading environment is substantially harder. They're just not, you know, so much of it is airy. And, you know, when I say airy, I mean, you know, there's all these cryptocurrencies with essentially no value. And the only thing that's going on is trading. And most of the time, um, the trading, it, you know, these, these, tokens just plummet in value relative to Bitcoin. So you're, you're trying to catch little ups amidst a landslide of down movements. Whereas if you just held Bitcoin, you'd be doing better the vast majority of the time. So it, it's a difficult environment. I know very few people who profited relative to Bitcoin doing it. Um, I was fortunate to have found good trades for, for uh, a long time and, and made a living that way. But you know, so I guess, you know, I, I believe that, that Alameda was probably, you know, doing well at the beginning, but where it really ballooned was uh, in this environment uh, created by uh, Terra, um, the, the Terra Luna trading environment. Well, it's yield farming where, you know, you were putting up, uh, you were, you know, staking cryptocurrency um, or you, you were staking people who wanted to invest in assets that they couldn't otherwise invest in in their markets. So how, how big is such a market? Well, you know, there's something very weird about the way that it went on. I think that it was, uh, you know, in many ways a spoofed market, but this is what um, they started playing in this market just in, in gigantic quantities. And it's one of those things where, um, and, and I said this to to friends, we had a, a last year, early last year when Bitcoin hit 50,000 for the first time, went out with uh, a dozen friends for dinner in a nice steakhouse. And then, you know, like 30 of us met up for drinks at a bar afterward and, when we we're at the steakhouse eating dinner, you know, I was told about the you know, people who were yield farming and I had started my sub stack. And so I didn't really have, you know, time to go back and, and 
trade, it was very frustrating because I was hearing these yields and I was like, you know, doing the math in my head, you know, 230%. Okay. I could double three point, you know, two times or whatever. Oh, I could go 10 X in a year. And, and I said, but you, you guys understand that, that the key to this is to pull out before the rug gets pulled. And uh, those people who were at the table who did made good money. Um, but that's the way that that was it. I, it just seems obvious to me. It's very weird not looking, you know, looking back, but here, you know, I, I don't know if people were drinking the Kool-Aid or they were all in on some giant scam. And we'll talk about that more as we go, but you can go find this Forbes article and read it completely if you like. So here's Sam and, and you know what, you, you just, you have to see this video. I'm going to pull this video and just play the whole thing, like to kind of understand the mystique that was created around him. But yeah, I, it, and it's up to you to decide whether this is an acting job or whether this is his actual ideology. I'm going to leave it at that. Okay, the guy you see next to me is the most generous billionaire in the world, and I found him. Hi, my name is Sam, and this is my story. Sam has crazy hair. Sam is vegan. Sam sleeps five hours a night. Sam lives in the Bahamas with 10 roommates. Sam is 29 years old only, but Sam has $22 billion. And he wants to donate all of it to charity. But why? Well, for many reasons. I flew all the way from Dubai to the Bahamas to tell you the incredible story of Sam Bankman Freed. Ever since Sam was a kid, he wanted to get rich, really, really rich, but not for the reasons you think. I wanted to get rich not because I like money, but because I wanted to give that money to charity. So after graduating from MIT, he went on a mission to get rich. One day, he noticed that the price of Bitcoin in the United States was different from the price of Bitcoin in Japan. And that was an opportunity. So, you know, Bitcoin is trading at $10,000 on a US exchange, 11,000 on a Japanese exchange. You take $10 million, you, you buy 10,000, you sell 11,000, you make a million dollars. And we were able to do that every weekday. So every weekday, you made a million dollars in profit just from doing that. That's right. <laughs> yeah, from this simple idea, he made a total of $20 million. And that was just the beginning. Sam became a crypto trader full time and started a crypto trading company called FTX. FTX is a cryptocurrency exchange. It's a place that you would go to buy and sell Bitcoin and other digital assets. And this is the crazy part. In two years, his company became one of the biggest in the world, worth over $40 billion, and he's not even 30 years old. That's impressive. But Sam is not a traditional billionaire because he believes in the concept of earn to give. Which means his goal as a human is to make as much money as possible just to give it away, earn to give. And that's exactly what he's doing. So let's say that you have $100 
and you want to figure out what you can do with it to help the world. Earning to Give is thinking about which causes, which charities save the most lives per dollar. This hundred dollars can go as far as it possibly can to help the world. Last year, this 29-year-old guy donated $50 million. Next year, he's planning to donate $500 million a year. And next decade, he will probably give away more than $10 billion. The amount of good that you can do uh, for the future of the world is, is really large. And it's way more than you can do to actually make yourself happy with anything like that amount of money. And he is funding everything you can think of. Global warming. It's one of the biggest problems that we have to tackle together as a world. COVID-19 preparedness. We have to be ready for the next pandemic. <laughs> Neglected <laughs> tropical diseases. More than a billion people suffer from them. We have to eliminate these diseases. And of course, animal welfare. Animals deserve to live just like we do. It's also why I'm vegan. Sam doesn't need the money to buy a Lamborghini or to buy a Rolex or to impress his friends. In fact, his car is a Toyota Corolla. Oh, where, where's your car? It's uh, that one there. That's not quite a Toyota. Uh, yeah, it's a Corolla. Why don't you buy a Lamborghini, man? It didn't have any particular need for one. He wants to get rich in order to impact the world and change it. Try to think about what are the most important problems facing the world today and what can you do to help make those as much better as possible. In the next few decades, Sam may become a trillionaire. He is an example that age is just a number and that making money is not a bad thing as long as you use that money to help the world. All right. We're done, nice. man. Amazing. Well, I don't know about anybody else, but I watched that and I don't feel like I just watched an interview. I feel like I watched a commercial, well put together PR piece, uh, scripted, uh, uh, Saturday Night Live skit, perhaps. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, I, Sam is, a, is, is part of this um, group of people who promotes this idea called effective altruism. And he went on the Sam Harris podcast and, and other places. He talks about it a lot, you know, uh, effective altruism. Um, I, I love this quote. As soon as you say, what are the odds that there's a way to be infinitely happy? What if infinite utility is a possibility? Now, all of a sudden, we're comparing hierarchies of infinity. Linearity breaks down. It's it's so deep. And and he like, you know, of course, Sam is the place where you go to say, say deep sounding, you know, wooish sort of things, especially if you're, you know, somebody who's famous, uh, need the PR. It feels like, uh, you yeah, know, more what his show is about than, <laughs> uh, than anything anyway. Um, yeah, they, they did kind of use all the cool kid buzzwords. Um, yeah, th there's something to this. I feel like, um, this is a lot of what, um, sort of, uh, uh, the cognitive elites leftism, which is not really leftism. It's like, left orbitism, um, the people who learn how to be the financial engineers and the people who learn how to, you know, dominate the world above the creators, above the engineers and inventors. Um, you know, those people 
they they need so much PR that I think they they create these philosophies that serve as these you know narcissistic masks. And you know, of course, he has a mask in hand in the video. He never wore one that we saw, but anyway, drives a Corolla, but he has this you know mansion that fits ten people in the Bahamas. So well, well you know, whatever that is. Uh, all right, so you know, <laughs> putting things together. Um, well, he spent an awful lot of money on the elections, um, helping to elect Joe Biden. He was the second largest Biden donor uh, in the world. Um, and that happened very, very quickly, right? I mean, yeah, 2019, uh, I don't know what Alameda was founded. Was it founded 2018? Um, but, you know, by 2020, he's giving, you know, 20 something million dollars to just, you know, just to elect a president, um, a lot more than that overall. Uh, but also, look, he funded the Together trial. By the way, this was the trial in which uh, ivermectin was used with a you know, smaller than usual dosage and just for like three days, if I recall correctly. Um, I, I did more of the hydroxychloroquine research, so I don't, I don't remember the exact specifics, but you know, people have looked into it and found all kinds of problems with it. Um, anyhow, that, that's interesting. Well, here, here's the guy who, uh, effective altruism founder, he founded uh, an ethic, I guess. Um, and, and then went to work for Alameda uh, at, at the executive level, right? Um, so, uh, but I just wanted to point this out. Um, you know, he talks here about the data says that controlling the spread of malaria and worms has the biggest bang for the buck. And what medicines do you use for that? Well, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. Uh, it's, it's just this, you know, there, there are ironies all over the place in the story. Like you really just can't make this stuff up. It's great. Um <laughs> So uh, here, here's some conversation. I saw somebody pull out on Twitter, by the way, I stole liberally from uh, from Twitter and other people's memes for this. I hope people forgive me for that. Uh, but, you know, a lot of them are clearly poignant. But, um, uh, you know, there, there were people who, who you know, were people talking about, you know what, actually, uh, we, we all thought he was dishonest. Um, a lot of people are, are saying that now that he's no longer you know, this, this head figure, people say he was dishonest and vindictive. So apparently people were afraid of him. Um, that's, it's worth noting. It's worth thinking about as we go through, because, you know, he just presented this very fuzzy, cuddly image of himself and, and, you know, earning money in order to make people's lives better, which I, you know, I, I don't know, you know, you're, you're an entrepreneur, you're a smart guy. You don't think, Hey, I'm going to, uh, invest enormous amounts in education and entrepreneurship. Like, it's just hard not to think these are two, you know, low hanging areas, you know, and, and, you know, worms and malaria too, that that's all good, you know, uh, fix some, fix some low hanging fruit type diseases. But I mean, we're already doing a lot of that, right? I don't know. I don't know. Anyhow. Um, yeah, you can, you can read through these more completely, but, uh, you know, it, it looks like there was an attempt to sort of diffuse some of the shade through all kinds of people that, um, that have been around, uh, SBF and you wind up with, with other people jumping in, you know, um, you know, Terrell FCA to co-found Alameda with Sam, as is, dis uh, I'm reading the last one here, as it's discussed elsewhere, she and many others split ways with Sam in early 2018. I'll leave it to them to share more if, when they want to, but I think it's fair to say that they left in part due to concerns about Sam's business ethics. Uh, she's had nothing to do with Sam since early 2018 it would be deeply ironic if, given what actually happened, Sam's actions are used to tarnish Tara. Disclosure, Tara is my wife. So, you know, there, there's, 
I guess everybody's looking into everybody at this point and trying to figure out, you know, what went on and who, who knew what and when. Um, and then <laughs> here's uh, uh, Eliezer Yudkowsky, who, <laughs> uh, you know, he, he's another one of those intellectuals who he, he's got this sort of guru cult following. Um, you know, it's like intellectual and philosophical at the same time. But, you know, uh, and he's smart. He's smart. And he has a good way with words. He explains things well a lot of times. But, you know, here he is, you know, kind of saying that we shouldn't be paying attention to the relationship between um, the person who was elevated to CEO of Alameda, who was Carolyn Ellison, whom uh, Sam Bankman Free dated, uh, perhaps off and on. Um, it's unclear exactly uh, what that story is, but Yudkowsky is like, oh, we shouldn't care who's dating who. But you know what? When when essentially one person is the counterparty of another and has the potential to, you know, hide losses or you know help launder money, perhaps. I'm not saying that that's what happened. We'll talk about the evidence later, but. Uh, that that that's probably you know worth an observation. So let let's start to take a look here. Um, so this is this is Sam. And he you know he he helped build Alameda, but then he went to be CEO of FTX. But he's involved in both, right? And and uh, you know here here's his his girlfriend or ex girlfriend. I don't know what you say now, but uh, whose father, who was professor of economics at MIT, was the former boss of. Gary Gensler, who is the head of the SEC, who is the person who would be responsible for paying attention to this, this snowballing, you know, growing gigantic multi-billion, multi-tens of billions of dollars financial empire. So, well, you know, that that's kind of interesting right there. Um, and also points out, you know, uh, uh, let's see. Um, the, the, the family aunt, Linda Freed, is a WEF member, WEF member on the Global Agenda Council on Aging. The father, Joseph Bankman, is a Stanford professor who has lobbied on behalf of hedge fund managers, uh, FTX, head of ventures and commercial. Amy Wu started with the Clinton Foundation. Uh, Nishad Singh, director of engineering, spent over uh, $8 million for Democratic candidates. So that's in addition to the, the tens of millions that, that Sam spent. And finally, Obama's Commodity Futures Trading Commissioner, Commissioner Mark Wetjen was literally the head of FTX policy and regulation. And now, you know, I, I'm going to go ahead and say this. I worked for two billionaire hedge fund operators, um, one at, you know, what became, I, I think, the second largest hedge fund in the world, the largest quant fund in the world, D.E. Shaw. And then later I worked for um, uh, D.E. Shaw, and that's uh, David Shaw. And then later I worked for Jeff Yaz at uh, Susquehanna. Um We'll see Jeff's Yaz, uh, Yaz's name here later, not not because he's involved in the scandal, but we'll see. Um, but, you know, th this type of involvement, this just doesn't happen much. You know, it doesn't happen much amongst established hedge funds. Um, it certainly shouldn't happen much um, with, with, you know, fledgling operations, but we'll talk about why it is they got so big so quickly. They said they wanted to spend over a billion dollars on the Democratic Party for 2024. Wow. That's, that's I guess, that's uh, giving the money away. <laughs> Electing the team that you want to, you know, the political team that you want. <clears throat> so, you know, and, and that's not even choosing which party gets elected. That's the ability to select who gets slated for the party, right? So, <clears throat> so uh, Sam Barbara Freed, his mom, 
was uh, Hillary Clinton's lawyer. <laughs> wow. Um, and uh, his uh, uh, Gabe, his brother, is founder of Guarding Against Pandemics. And I guess that's where, you know, Sam starts pushing that money into the, the Together trial and other things, too. Um, he was a legislative correspondent for the U.S. House reps. Um, okay, so, yeah, some of this we've repeated already, so we'll move on. And, and you know what, I'll go ahead and say this. I, I can't guarantee that 100% of the information on these slides is correct. Uh, I, I did an enormous amount of reading for, for the, like, like the last three days, trying to you know, catch up on things. And so a lot of these details I know are absolutely true, but it, you know, it's possible that there's a mistake in here somewhere. So I'll, I'll just go ahead and say that. Just, you know, let's, let's, shove, let's shove that liability away. Assume that this is still a developing story. Assume that you should have to you know, do your own research and, and you know, um, ascertain whether I'm telling you the truth. Maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just inviting you all here to, maybe I put this slideshow together for 10 hours just to spin my wheels. Um, but you know, where's this going? I mean, he's an instant sort of superstar and, you know, I, I didn't do the, this is Sequoia, by the way, this is the venture capital firm that answers to God alone. Right. And, and not only did they put massive amounts of money in his corner, they let him then turn around and spend some of that money buying into Sequoia, $200 million worth. So that was a marriage right there. Right. I mean, that's like, it's not like zero to 60. That's like zero to 700 miles an hour. That's like, uh, you know, that's a sonic boom on the way. Um, <laughs> and he's being put on stage with, you know, um, you know, sort of model-esque presenters. I, I don't, I don't even know who these people are. It's one of those Tom Brady's wife. I know that there was like, there's an involvement with Tom Brady, like, you know, him paying Tom Brady to advertise for FTX, I think. And Tom Brady had the laser eyes on Twitter. I always wondered where, where Tom Brady got involved, but I guess that this all answered the question. And, you know, I, I, I would have known that two years ago had I continued trading, but I stopped to do the pandemic research, right? So uh, I, I wasn't as up to date for all the, the nitty gritty events in the last two years. And this rose so quickly. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll just leave that there. And, you know, some of these slides I was putting together and I didn't quite get all the information out, but I, you know, I just wanted to, I wanted to, on this page, I was going to collect a lot of the things that he spent money on, you know, not just the, you know, $40 million for this cycle, but he also, it was a deal for like, I think $135 million for the naming rights of one of the big sports arenas. And there was, I think there were naming rights for multiple sports arenas, maybe the Miami heat and the golden, golden state. I, I'm not even, I'm not certain. So I don't, you know, I read through it and I don't remember what's what not paying attention to which sports team was, which, but I mean, just uh, billboards with his face on them, you know, in big cities, uh, there was a lot of money spent on just, you know, creating glitz and hype. So just keep that in mind as we go. Um, and so this is, uh, this is the ex-girlfriend or, or off and on girlfriend. I, I don't know exactly, but you know, she was, um, she was, uh, math, you know, math was growing up. Um, <laughs> this is where I stop and say, um, I, I and I'm not even going to say exactly who, but a lot of the characters in the story are actually former students of mine. Uh, I helped build uh, an online education company called Art of Problem Solving, where uh, we created, you know, materials and programs for, you know, young, young people who, who really enjoyed math and wanted to do more of it that they couldn't get at their school. You know, our, a lot of our kids would, would finish high school with, with um, what would be considered an undergraduate degree, you know, level of mathematics. 
uh, and even um, there was an assistant professor at MIT. I think he's moved to UC San Diego. His name was Karan Kedlaya. And when I was visiting MIT in 2005 uh, to work on one of these, um, one of the math programs that we ran, uh, he told us that uh, because of our students going to MIT, that they had to change their curriculum, that they were, you know, they were so far more advanced so quickly that it, it you know, changed the MIT math curriculum. So, you know, understand that these kids were, you know, she was doing original research into, you know, polynomials, um, you know, uh, representation theory, representation theory. This is where you can, you know, represent something in, in the language of modern algebra so that you can uh, think of it in terms of, you know, linear algebra, uh, you know, operations, meaning that you, you can basically do a level of algebra with them that you wouldn't otherwise be able to necessarily see without representing them in a new way. So um, that, that's sort of the basics of it, but that, that's quite advanced research for, you know, a high school student. And, um, and this program here that, that was highlighting her, I would write um, contest problems for them. I, um, some years I would write most of the test or a couple of years maybe, um, but I would write problems for a number of years. Just, you know, it's a, it's a cool program and all, but uh, I, I feel like we, we, we left a whole lot behind and I argued for this in the office before I left um, uh, art of problem solving I was um, you know for there were just two of us it was just me and the and the guy who's CEO um, and for several years we argued about whether or not we should be teaching economics and my argument was uh, it, it's this moral discipline that is being left behind as these kids move forward with greater and greater skills going into the world and you know I, I saw that as a problem but ultimately we never we never did start holding classes on economics. And I feel like that's a shame because I feel like, you know, that might be part of the reason why, you know, we're where we are. So just throwing that out there. But I feel like there's a lot of sort of narcissism in that community. I think the parents run a lot of the children's lives. A lot of the parents see the children as extensions of them in terms of uh, philosophy, competitiveness, politics, right? So the fact that, that both of these two main characters um, have very powerful pre, uh, parents, um, you know, uh, MIT and Stanford graduates who then became professors at Stanford and MIT, right? Uh, and and lawyer of Hillary Clinton, you know, these are people with a whole lot of influence and power. So, you know, keep that in mind. <laughs> uh, you know, and there are people all over the internet, you know, making fun of Caroline. But I'm I'm going to say this: I, I find the story more sad than funny. There are definitely funny elements to it. Like you, you can't, you, if you go through the tweet histories, like it, it, it's impossible not to make fun of it. It's impossible not to, but, you know, just, just realize that I think that what we're looking at is, is uh, <clears throat> what happens in the failure of society as you have, you know, like I said, I, I, I call it the left orbit. You know, it, it's, it's not really the left anymore. It's, it's this weird sort of meandering moral philosophy that covers itself with layers of narcissism that get built up. And uh, it just, you know, it's going to crash the whole world, right? And this is part of the reason why I think Bitcoin is important, because hopefully that can help pick up the world by providing, you know, monetary rails. And then there, there are other characters too. And, uh, you know, this gets cut off because the information wants you to pay a subscription to see the, the rest of their faces. But, you know, anyway, um, you know, it, everybody is, is virtue signaling their, their you know, altruistic, effective altruism compassion to the core here. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, Nishad Singh. Uh, and then uh, here's Sam Trabuco. And he became, uh, I can't remember what role he played. Uh, he was 
he was another one of my students. I, I think I had him when he was 11 years old in uh, one of my number theory classes. Um, but, you know, he, you know, you look through this and, and, you know, there's a lot of wisdom. This is a thread that I, I cut off most of from his Twitter account, but you know, it, it's, it's really ironic looking back, right? Bigger is bigger when betting is better. And he's talking about, look, when you've got, when the odds are in your favor, when the EV, the expected value is in your favor, that's when you should push all the chips in. And he gives examples in this thread. And, you know, it, it's just ironic because, you know, where this story ends is where they didn't have, you know, uh, the edge on their side and they, and they didn't understand the game that they were playing, I think. So I, you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, a, a lot of unfortunate waste here, but, you know, maybe, <clears throat> maybe some narcissism up there. And here's Sam Bankman-Fried posting on, um, on our website uh, back in 2009. So, so anyway, um, so, you know, I, I have a link to these people, right? Um, and, you know, it, it's sad to me that, that there's not more of a discussion of the philosophy going on whenever I would, whenever I would bring things up that might relate to sort of the emerging wokeness in the community. Uh, I was very much pushed out of conversations. In fact, I think I was pushed out essentially of the entire math education community where, you know, I, I had done, you know, a lot of things coached, um, you know, gold medalists at the international math Olympiad and a lot of these kids, um, you know, the schools that I started had the highest acceptance rate to, to MIT of any schools in the world. Um, but the Forbes article here goes on. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, Sam did have this this one great trade that sort of you know sent him into orbit, made him a hedge fund manager. Um, but then let's see if you want to read this. But you know, from the start, Sam wanted to take riskier decisions than the others wanted to take, said another early Alameda employee. Specifically, he pushed back against efforts by some to slow down risky trading efforts and overlooked the challenges of extracting capital from shady exchanges. Sam ran the shop. Sam ran everything. We all trusted him and believed in him, said an early employee of Alameda who worked with Sam and uh, his close circle. It was a dictatorship in a good way, a benevolent dictatorship. So it's kind of like he's he was such a forceful personality that everybody, you know, you either had to drink the Kool-Aid or you left like Tara, whom we read about earlier. So, you know, there's a filtration process right there. And if you think about it, if you stop to think about it, that's what totalitarianism is. It's where, you know, the bullying is so great that everyone who remains is sort of in a daze, in a super, in a stupor, and it becomes sort of a matrix reality created around them where they don't really see what's going on, or at least that's the best interpretation. I believe that's that's very possible. I've seen it. Um, but uh, Bankman Fried was looking beyond Bitcoin arbitrage when he approached Binance in 2019 with an idea to launch a futures trading desk, according to uh, Alameda employees. Binance wasn't interested, but the company's CEO, Changping Jin, uh, Changping Zhao, excuse me, CZ is what he goes by. Uh, so that's that's easier to say for the Western tongue, uh, did agree to join an initial funding round for Bankman Fried to launch his own exchange. And that's what became FTX. And, and you know, let, let's talk about this for a minute. This shouldn't happen. You shouldn't have a hedge fund manager running an exchange in their environment. In fact, like in ordinary rules like you would have to have a chinese wall you would have to have a separation but i think this is why you know caroline ellison became the ceo of alameda but that's a pretty close relationship already right like that's you know if, if there's anything going on it's, it's not as if you have self-regulation or you shouldn't assume that you have self-regulation in that sense so um yeah this was a really really 
bad idea from the start. And the fact that nobody caught on to that is a, it's a little bit baffling that nobody was, hello, throw the flag here. <laughs> um, yeah, Taz, yeah, yeah, you may be right. That's, that's at least part of the story. Um, oh, we'll move on here. So oh, did I leave this out? Well, examining the organizations again, this is where I you know, didn't finish making my slideshow. A lot of time put into this, but um, there are known now, like just, just FTX alone, I guess, was separated into something like 72 entities I've heard. Uh, may, I can't remember the number I read exactly, 76, but there are like 160 entities involved, at least, in these various organizations um, that are tangled up in all of this um, between Alameda and FTX. So, you know, this isn't just a guy building a hedge fund, right? Like an ordinary hedge fund. Um, and, and yeah, I started building one myself, by the way. Um, but, uh, and, and well, I'll, I'll leave that story for another day. But um, you typically have like three to five LLCs in, in a typical hedge fund shell. And there are reasons for that, right? You want to be able to move money around in certain ways. Um, and not all, like you pass money out to an LLC that is the home of the investment pool. And that's that's where your outside investors put in and that's where you would distribute to them if they want to you know, withdraw any of their funds or their winnings or whatever. Um, but then that money is passed into another entity and then over here to where the trading occurs. And there are good reasons why that's done. Uh, when, when you see somebody branching into dozens of different entities um, that looks defensive or scheming and <clears throat> I mean, this is this is a giant, you know, I, this is just enormous. This may also have some to do with the acquisitions that they made. And we'll talk about that more later. Um, but it, it doesn't have to, to be like this. And it, it looks very convoluted. And whatever lawyers were used to draw this up, like this is where the power connections come in. This is why it matters to look at who the parents are. This isn't just, you know, some egotistical 30-year-old who, who got this far into things. Uh, I, I doubt that he was fully managing, you know, this level of uh, of corporate legal maneuvering himself. No, this was he was connected to the right person by somebody. So, you know, a lot of people got involved here. We um, see SEC involvement, major lawyers involved, um, and of course we have these you know very large donations uh, into politics, right? And this is where you know, I said, uh, 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 one of my old bosses. I, I didn't know he was a Republican. Um, I uh, wouldn't have known you know, exactly where his politics leaned, but uh, he's the third largest donor to the Republican Party from that cycle. Anyhow, um, but Sam was the second largest donor to Democrats next to George Soros. <laughs> so, I mean, that's that's a lot of influence and a lot of power right there. So you can see, like, you know, where is this money coming from? Right. And like I said earlier, I was trading in cryptocurrency and I was I was doing awesome. Uh, I, I had a great, you know, nine month stretch in 2017, 2018, when, when they getting, when there was enough volume, when there's not volume, there's nothing you can do, right? When the volume goes away, it's only during this one part of the four year cycle, maybe year and a half when the getting is good, when there's enough volume in the markets that you can, you know, follow, you know, I, I would trade sometimes against exploitable trade bots, but the vast majority, um, I, you know, I would, I would find things to exploit. Most of them were. Um, you know, looking at pump and dumps, like understanding 
what was going on in the environment and why a target might be hit soon and paying attention to, you know, the right markets, seeing them bubble a little bit, uh, understanding, you know, what might be happening when, when the prices dip down and the volume gets low sometimes, and, and it's not as much a signal now as it was four years ago, but that meant that, that the whales were buying the bottom. So, you know, you, you, you come up with, with certain observations, um, but most of them were sort of very solid. Like you, you would see what you would know was a pump and dump. You'd see, you've seen the patterns. You've seen the way the bots would trade, right? But there's not enough money to, tr like, you know, I was never even trading with a million dollars at once, you know, doing that. Like, what would I have done with $5 million or $10 million? Can I have employed that capital effectively? I, I you know, I'm sure I could have employed it. I, I deployed it. Um, I'm sure I could have... Uh, you know, found ways to make it useful, but it wouldn't have been at nearly the same level of returns as what I was doing with like a six digit amount of money, right? When you're talking about hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, it's almost absurd to think, I mean, it, it's not almost absurd. It's entirely absurd. It's overboard absurd to think that a group of people was finding, you know, good, good trades to play unless they were involved with things like themselves, like pump and dump scams. And that's possible. Maybe they were, maybe they were like, you know, paying people like uh, McAfee to, to pump up coins, but mostly they got in after the pump and dumps, right? Alameda was created after most of that sort of action had already come down from last crypto winter at the end of 2018. So I, you know, where did all, where did all this profit come from that they're doing this stuff with? But, and, and the answer I think is that it, it wasn't much profit. The answer I think is that uh, as they started to, to become, you know, noticed, they were able to raise massive amounts of money, billions of dollars. And they, they created their own token, you know, FTT. And that token was sort of seen as a share, a way to invest in their crypto hedge fund. And they were paying employees in this token. So people trusted it, you know, right. And, and of course, when so many big names are getting involved with you, um, you know, the, the money just, it, it rolls in further. Right. It's very Ponzi scheme-esque, even if it's not a traditional Ponzi scheme. It's, it's, it's something like that. But I'll talk a little bit more later about what I think was going on in the overall structure. But, you know, here we see, you know, even, even money going into the Ukraine war, right? And then that Ukrainian money going into the FTX exchange. Like, <laughs> you know, what is, what is that there? I mean, that really looks on face like a money laundering operation. So, is that part of the reason people were throwing so much money at them? Did they agree to run a money laundering operation uh, to, you know, be able to take money that was being poured into Iran and bring it back out for, for who knows, right? I mean, I don't know the answer to this question, but we should be looking into it. Oh, wait, you know, when, when you're so connected with the SEC, maybe nobody's looking into it. Anyhow, so... Well, I, I'm just going to leave that story here. <laughs> uh, my, my friend Mike will probably show up in a few minutes, but uh, we'll, we'll call that the uh, yeah, the end of the opening. Uh, you know, you can uh, refresh your popcorn, get a drink. I'm going to rest my throat for a moment. I've been talking a lot today. And I'm going to look at uh, the streams here. Who's saying what? Is anybody, um, anybody talking on Rumble? Um, now everybody's just talking through YouTube this time. Yeah, I can see the YouTube straight on the screen in front of me. So that's a little easier because of the slideshow. I'm having to move around and, and I'll say hello to people. Uh, uh, hello, Rebecca. Uh, hello. Uh, uh, 
I, you know, a lot of you I've seen here before. Uh, I, <laughs> um, Sam Harris, the guy who said he would not have cared if Hunter Biden had corpses of children in his basement. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's effective altruism to some people, I guess. Right. I, I don't know. Depends on how you define is perhaps. Uh, So wait, COP27, maybe, maybe I'm misunderstanding this. Uh, I don't know what COP27 is. Maybe you can tell us in chat. Yeah, you know, there's something about like, you know, the, the amount of virtue signaling. And I'm just going to say this. It's almost as if it, it's a script that has happened. It's it sort of evolved over time to be the most effective thing. Um, you know, look around the world, you know, USAID, which went into Peru to sterilize women, right? I mean, USA, USAID, I mean, pretty much everyone knows that it was a CIA cutout. That's not even, um, it's not even uh, uh, really debated so much anymore. And I can see uh, Liam's watching on, on Rumble. So uh, we, we do have some, uh, some chatting going on on Rumble. <laughs> bring it over here a little bit. Okay, so you know what? Um, we'll move on with the story. My friend Mike is here, and let's see how do I do this. Uh, I'm going to try to add him to the stream, so he's audio only. Hey, Matt. Hey, welcome, Mike. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Can you hear me? Okay. Is there feedback on the speaker or anything? Oh, that sounds pretty good. But yeah, man. So thanks for uh, thanks for having me on to talk about this. I've been watching a little bit of uh, of your setup with regards to the cast, cast of characters, and it's uh, it's really good stuff. Uh, thanks. Um, any, anything to add before we get into the rising action of the story? Um, there's, uh, depending on who your, who your audience is, it, it, there's many cool parts of this story. Um, I would say that there's a little, it, at some point you're going to ask yourself what caused this and when did this start? And it goes back to some relationships from 2019 and some, uh, some, competition between a hedge fund and, and SBF, but, but I think we'll get there if we get there on the storytelling. All right. Well, moving forward, uh, act two, the confrontation. Ah. So, um, so you, you dealt with, uh, Tara and Luna more than I did. So uh, do you, you want to tell the audience, you know, what, what is Tara? So Terra and Luna are part of uh, it's two different assets, part of the same blockchain. And the goal they were trying to solve was an algorithmic stable coin. Um, that was all. That was always a, a goal that would. It's a. It's a really good treasure if you can solve it, but fundamentally it can't be solved because it's a perpetual motion machine. Um, and if you're an outsider, not familiar with this stuff, you might say, well, if everyone knew it was a perpetual motion machine, why did you, why, why did everybody invest in it? And it's just another one of those societal things where, you know, we all knew Ivermectin worked, you know, we all knew we all, everyone, there's the group consensus. And then there's a, that the people telling the truth get shut out. It becomes mayhem anyway. So, Oh, the thing that's important to know about uh, Luna is that when Luna crashed, it is reflexive, meaning the more it goes down, the more sellers there are. So Luna did not crash in a small, slow manner. Luna crashed straight to zero. And yeah, it's sort of a speed bump thing because, you know, it, it was stable. Like, you know, little deviations would have, you know, would be sort of pushed back to the mean. 
but once there was, you know, once you reach something that looked like a snowball, that that's when the whole, you know, the whole sweater unwound from that thread. Right. There's some theories about how, uh, Alameda's or excuse me, FTX's, uh, liquidation engine worked. They were, they were taking the other side of the trade on some stuffs. Um, but the problem with Luna is because it's reflexive all the way down, it's going straight to zero. So the theory is that they were holding a lot of Luna and it was worthless at the end as a result of their, of their liquidation engine. But uh, the, the important thing to know is that a huge hole got blown in their balance sheet as a result of this crash. A huge hole got blown in everybody's. So, yeah, and this does go back. Um, yeah, so here, you know, 2018, um, I, I brought this up to point out that uh, there were people, you know, uh, head of risk at MakerDAO. And we'll talk about MakerDAO more a little bit later because there's something very sad that happened there. Um, but yeah, you know, there were smart people who were saying, hey, this isn't going to work. By the way, don't do this. So, you know, people were warned, right? If you were in this space, um, you know, you knew that there was a distinct sign that you maybe probably shouldn't be managing tens of billions worth of capital on this type of system, right? Um, and, but, you know, Mike was... Were you were you were at the steakhouse house with us? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. And and but I I wasn't at the, the same part of the table as you, but I was across from uh, from uh, our friends whose names start with C's, mm -hmm. and uh, and you know we were talking about the the yield farming there, and you know and I said you know I hope everybody at this table knows you know you play this yield farming game you you know the only way to play it is to get out before the rug pull occurs, and that's what I've told everybody you know that that I talked about with it since um, you know don't. Don't expect this to last. You know, it, it, there will be a crypto winter, and you know when it shatters, that will be that'll be when crypto winter begins. Um, so everybody was, you know, everybody who really knew crypto, Bitcoin deeply, cryptocurrency deeply, I think, um, knew what the risks were right there. And then you move forward to twenty twenty two, and May is when you know the, the real havoc was reaped. Um, so tell us about. Uh, yeah, do you think this was a, an intentional shot at Luna? Do you think somebody sabotaged this? Um, there's so there's some uh, the Three Arrows Capital suspects that SBF uh, attacked one of their positions directly. Ultimately, when you start getting around to blame, it's kind of immaterial because the whole the whole structure was rotten. Whoever kicked the door in, it was going to come down, and because a lot of the questions I'm going to try to answer here is why did this happen? Well, structurally something was going to happen. And one of the, one of the easiest ways to tell with that is all the yield going around, right? The reason why yield exists is because you loan out money. Someone goes, takes that money and does productive economic activity, earning more money to pay into the system. That's why that's where the new money in the system comes from. But with all these, with all these yields being paid, you can deduce that it requires new money into the system because there is no productive economic activity uh, uh, underneath. So, um, so right, here's, here's some quotes about this, like some really awful quotes. I mean, there was, you know, clearly this, this bubble grew where you, you know, there was nothing happening economically. So, you know, what, you know, what was going on there? So, mm. so, um, so, when the Luna event happened, it, it blew some guys out. And when you have something like Luna, Luna was uh, unique in that it went straight to zero. So 
there there's few assets that go straight to zero that that are going to be on the balance sheet of a hedge fund or there shouldn't be um so so quickly but anyway so that knocked out that there's no way to buy a put either yeah yeah so it knocked out three arrows capital and we're learning now that it also knocked out alameda and we just learned this tonight it was in the new york times article um it was a super super softball article in the new york times and you spoke about it earlier you can tell when you know you can call it whatever you want it's some sort of power structure that exists uh next to the government it's not clear that the government or this power structure could exist without each other. It's got many different names. Um, Moldbug calls it the cathedral. Some people call it the regime. Some people call it the deep state. Some the administrative state. They all have different connotations. The Davos crowd. The Davos yeah, crowd. And, and, and maybe these are some uh, overlapping entities, but um, you know, it all seems to function as a culture. Yeah. So, and when you when you spoke earlier about the effect of altruism stuff, I think one of the really important things to point out is the the this neuroses among the ruling class, and to watch them express themselves as a class, it feels like that they're really they're preoccupied with trying to explain away about what's about to happen morally, to 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 give themselves a little bit of cover for what they're about to do. Um, so anyway, uh, where was I? Well, you know, I'm going to read, uh, uh, you know, from this uh, Forbes article because, I mean, th this just says it all right here. Perhaps the most inexplicable thing about the gross lack of diligence was that Bankman Fried wasn't shy about what he was doing. In an April interview with Bloomberg's Matt Levine, Bankman Fried, then worth $20 billion and the world's richest 29-year-old, was asked to explain the concept of yield farming, a strategy for earning massive windfalls that Bankman Fried had reportedly mastered uh, at his home uh, homegrown trading firm, which is weird because it, it's actually it's the easiest thing to do once you've set it up, right? Like this isn't a trade so much; it's a lending scheme. It's a lending scheme. It's not like he they were doing any kind of like masterful mathematics. I'm sure they had some sort of like system where under assumptions they had you know the amounts invested were sort of balanced in different ways, whatever. I mean, but ultimately, ultimately, this isn't trading options. This is not you know exchange arbitrage i mean this is this is simple stuff um <clears throat> and and so they're making massive amounts of money here so in his answer he chaotically described how crypto yields could be squeezed from a metaphorical black box that does literally nothing <laughs> that's amazing and uh so i'll, I'll just continue reading it. that that should tell you all you need to know if it doesn't consider Levine's reply I think of myself as a fairly cynical person, and that was so much more cynical that I know <laughs> that I know I would have described uh, farming. You're just like, well, I'm in the Ponzi business, and it's pretty good. So Bankman Fried didn't disagree, and it didn't matter. In fact, he almost seemed to think there wasn't a problem with what he was doing as long as the money kept flowing. This is a pretty cool box, right? He told Levine. Like, this is a valuable box as demonstrated by all the money that people have apparently decided should be in the box. And who are we to say that they're wrong about that? Like, you know, this is, I mean, boxes can be great. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I, and I'm going to, you know, maybe maybe I should wait till later, but I, I guess I, I'm going to go ahead and say this now. What I think that they're doing is trying to get a magic kite to fly. Yeah. And that magic kite might very well have been a world global banking center, right? Because perhaps if you've convinced everybody, 
that this box is the place where all their capital should flow through, and it's the box that you have learned to dominate, then perhaps it would be that productive capital began to flow through that box. So I'm, I'm throwing that out there and we'll, we'll move forward. Maybe we'll talk about this more later. I've got some slides that relate to it a little bit more, but so, you know, well, he said he wanted to give away billions. He did it in one day. Um, I guess at, at, at the height, I've seen different numbers. Some people say he was worth 26 billion. Some people say 30, but uh, at this point, um, you know, just a few days ago, he was worth 16 billion and the next day he was worth 1 billion or a little less than 1 billion. Um, so, you know, I, I'm going to bring in another story here because I think that it, you know, th these may very well relate, right? If there is something as big going on as an attempted global economic coup, then perhaps the death of Nikolai Mushagian factors in right here. And this is a really suspicious death. And there are other articles written about this that people may want to go out and, and read, um, you know, other connections to potential villains in the, in the cryptocurrency world world. But, you know, what I want to point out is this is a guy who uh, had just inked a deal with Coinbase um, to use his stable coin. Uh, was it, is it die or a die fork? Uh, I'm not sure. Make or die. Or make yeah. or DAO. Excuse yeah. Me. He, he was founder. He was founder or co-founder of MakerDAO. And, um, and, and he had the stable coin technology that was going to be used by a major exchange. You know, Coinbase is one of the biggest exchanges. Finance is the biggest, and it is, you know, it seems to be run pretty well. I, I'm, I'm not a fan of centralized exchanges, but just for what it's worth, you know, um, and this was going to create competition. And it may be that that what a you know global attempt at centralizing all this needed was to take out an adversary with another stable coin. Throwing it out there as a theory. So, you know, the day after, and, and just to point out, you know, he, he says in a tweet, you know, um, they will torture me to death. And this was October 28th, early in the morning. Uh, in the morning of October 29th, he's found uh, in the water unresponsive. And so, you know, a person who tweeted that out, uh, Craig Sellers, by the way, he's, he's the CEO of Tether, which is the largest stable coin, the, the most traded cryptocurrency in the world, and the number three in market cap uh, of all the cryptocurrencies. So <clears throat> you know, he, he's even pointing out, you know, this partnership with Coinbase. Um, but I'm going to read down below. Other internet users discussed the suspicious circumstances around Mushegian's death elsewhere online, including Twitter. User Ethereum Jesus who posted a tweet on October 31st commenting on how often people in the crypto community drown at sea under suspicious circumstances. So um, do, do you know who those other people are? Um, who was, I'm sorry, I was, I was out of the room for a sec. Uh, I was, uh, you know, uh, down at the bottom, some tweet about, you know, the, the number of people in the crypto, you know, important people in the crypto sphere. Oh, there was one guy. There was an old Bitcoiner. He had two point four billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. He drowned it in Costa Rica. He was, was like Barry Sherman. Uh, I forget his name, but he was a he lived a life like a supervillain. Like he, the, the early Bitcoiners were weird people, and he was one of them. Or, or was it was that the Romanian guy? I think it was a Romanian dude. Okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> so there, there is there is some suspicious stuff going on uh, that, that looks like it could be power control type of stuff. So, um, and, you know, uh, 
just want to point out here just because, you know, when, when people are calling it right, you know, it deserves to be seen. But uh, this is Corey Clipston of Swan Bitcoin. Uh, do you know Corey? I'm aware of him. Yes. I don't know. Him sure. OK, um, well, so, you know, he points out, you know, he called he called BS on Luna uh, Celsius and FTX, um, you know, well before they collapsed. So, you know, he's pointing out, look, <laughs> go back and look at these other things, too. There are all these other things that just don't make sense that are, you know, fake uh, crypto stuff. Um, uh, you know, people who show those things, you know, keep a list, understand who those players are. I, you know, when I started, uh, I have you know, over 20,000 pages of notes about topics that are important to me. And this is part of the reason I'm able to write my sub stacks. Um, you know, sort of carefully and easily when I do, but I, you know, I started the, the, the reason I started that was because when I started trading Bitcoin, um, there were so many people and, uh, relationships that I needed to understand that I started keeping files on each one of them. Um, so it, you know, it, it does come in handy if you are interested in investing in the sphere, but I would say for most people, don't even think about investing unless you're going deep into this stuff, start with Bitcoin, you know, for the most part, people who are thinking that they're going to be like VCs coming in and investing, I, I think are mostly going to get fleeced. But, you know, there, there are people out there who talk about this stuff. And, and, you know, these charts right here, this is exactly how I made money in cryptocurrency trading. It was probably the largest portion of, of what I made before I stopped trading was in recognizing these pump and dumps. And like I said, you know, you start paying attention to who the names are and you watch their projects and you get on exchanges where you can take advantage when the pump and up happens. Um, and, and there are people who use tools like, you know, uh, seeing how many people are talking about a particular cryptocurrency on Twitter, because when that that noise goes up, you know, the pump and up has started. Anyhow, um, so here's a quote. I don't know which emotion is stronger, my utter rage at Sam and others for causing such harm to so many people or my sadness and self-hatred for falling for this deception. And you know who that quote is by? No. That's William McCaskill, who is the founder of, of uh, Effective Altruism. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's important to notice like Sam's getting the kid glove treatment and it, does that mean that Sam works directly with the New York Times or are they just political allies? This is, if, if you're an outsider looking in, you're not familiar with the space, understand what Sam did uh, as far as financial crime wise and how predatory it was is absolutely monstrous. Absolutely monstrous. And we'll explain the actual uh, mechanisms behind what he did here in a bit. But in short, he went and hunted out user deposits at companies, would buy the company, they would then put those deposits in FTX and he would gamble them away. So it's like his sins were not just his company. He went and found out other user deposits to hunt out, to gamble away. And in that, in that sense, he, he damn near killed the whole industry. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons why people shouldn't keep their money on exchanges. It, it serves like keeping all the gold in one vault right? If, if it's in the vault, it's not really yours. And you can't even really, you know, use it as an effective money. And if you did start to use it as an effective money, the people holding it could then, you know, their money would inflate. So you'd be helping the crooks, essentially, right? But yeah, um, if you have money on an exchange, they can, they can sell that as, as a paper asset. And that's something that, um, oh, what's the, um, the founder of, um, I'm forgetting your name for the moment. She's awesome. Uh, up in Wyoming, the first uh, U.S. crypto bank, uh, Catholic, what is it? Caitlin. Caitlin, excuse me. 
and and her last name. I usually know it because I follow her on Twitter, but you know, I, I pay so much attention to the pandemic. But uh, um, uh, you know, Caitlin talks about how she 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 feels like rehypothecating a Bitcoin. In other words, these exchanges selling the Bitcoin that they shouldn't think that they own, right? Uh, selling it into the market like a like paper selling rehypothecation of Bitcoin was the reason we didn't see the crypto run up that we expected to see. Right. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. I think there's multiple facets to that. But anyhow, well, this is just, you know, a little meme fun. Um, you know, but, you know, what you look at ultimately is, is it appears that Sam has zero regard for the truth, um, that everything is, is just sort of, you know, like, you know, why would we have cared about any of this? We had the opportunity to do it, so we did. Why is there moral responsibility in playing this game? That's that's the way everything feels. But um, uh, I guess he's in custody in Bahamas, but there was like a rumor that his private jet was headed toward Argentina. So, you know, I, I don't know how I can know at this point, but something, something weird has happened with his account on Twitter. <laughs> um, you know, I... I don't know what this is or what it means, but everybody's watching. In that New York Times article just got released about an hour and a half ago, Sam actually mentioned these antics and said he didn't know what it was. Didn't he? He did. He was just a cryptic message with no purpose, is what the New York Times article said. Um, it, if you or I do this, we're under the jail. Like this is a different class of people. This is like um, he's playing League of Legends. He just stole eight to ten billion, maybe more, um, from people. <laughs> so anyway, it is very bad. So you know, talking about like the the you know potential uh, of something large, like a you know an international scale event. <clears throat> um, so what's this connection between Evergrande and and Tether? So there's a long history of of Tether FUD. Um, and I'll, I'll give you a brief history of it. So it started in about 2017 and it always stayed there regardless of additional evidence. And it always made me think that it was bankrolled. And I think that there's two strains of tether FUD going out right now. I think there's your propaganda tether FUD, but I also looked into it and I think that there's actually some, something really there. If you look at the attestation, some of the wording around key custodians, um, well, so their attestation is only valid in normal market conditions, and this is clearly not normal market conditions. Um, and they have $12 billion in other investments on their books. So while sometimes Tetherfoot is fake and sometimes I roll my eyes at Tetherfoot, now I'm, I'm everything's suspect. I don't know anything directly about Evergrande and Tether, but I, I'm, it's, as a skeptical Tetherfoot guy, I'm pretty convinced something's going on there. Yeah, so um, I, I will say this: uh, like you, I, I well, I, I specifically traded against Tether FUD, um, not in like gigantic quantities, but I made I don't know a few thousand dollars back in 2017, 2018 when I would hear uh, the stories and I would I would you know talk to people and I knew that hedge funds. In fact, I, I called uh, somebody at Jane Street and uh, said, you know, you guys are playing with Tether or. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I called someone at Susquehanna and asked them that. And and uh, apparently, you know, I was told, yeah, a lot of the hedge funds are, you know, um, buying Tether in order to be able to, to trade on certain exchanges. So um, so I, I felt comfortable at that level, right? E even if it is like, 
even if it is going to go bust someday um, and everything, it, you know, a lot of people say every money is a bubble. Okay. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know whether Tether might collapse in one year or in 10 years or in 100 years. Don't know. Um, I don't think it'll go 100 years. I don't think it'll need to. I think Bitcoin, once Bitcoin really gets going, there will be no need for a stable coin. And I think that that may be part of the game, which is, uh, you know, I, I think that's why we should be looking at this as an attempt to centralize, you know, control of the markets. But, um, yeah, apparently Tether is not fully, you know, funded. Uh, it is a fractional reserve funded. I think in a court case in New York, it came out in the documents that they were, was it 80, 85 percent? Backed. I don't know right offhand. It was high, but it's pretty solid. But if you really look at it, it's not a thousand percent solid. And with commercial paper, you have some risky assets, right? So, you know, it, it is what it is. So there is, you know, if you can attack the assets behind the stable coin, then you're attacking the stable coin. So there, there's that at least, you know, worth the discussion. Um, and you know, I didn't check all that. I, I just I ganked this one off of uh, somebody's blog or, or tweet or something. But um, you know, this is just kind of showing the complexity of trying to keep up with what would be going on following, you know, all where all the risk flows to. Um, one thing, if, if you want to stay on top of things right now, earlier today, about four or five hours ago, there was a bunch of there was a billion dollar of tether going from Bitfinex to some other exchange in tether. So we've never had a financial crash before like this, where we can see the, the blockchain, where we can see what people are transferring and, and catch companies lying on a bank run. So for example, there was a, a crypto.com that, that was making some real shifty moves, moving a bunch of their customer funds to another exchange. And they got called out on, on Twitter. They're kind of between a rock and a hard place of that. If they don't have the money, they want to do something, but they're going to get caught on chain. And so they're lying to us, but we can see it on chain. And, right. and that's still going on. One of the features that's beautiful about blockchain, which is that it is a public ledger. And when there are only a few people that could possibly be passing around large amounts of money, uh, typically the large wallets get identified pretty quickly when and you don't have to be like some big, you know, uh, analysis firm to, to figure out some of these clues. Right. Like there's only a few big players. So you figure out who people are if you really start looking into it. Um, and this is uh, this is another slide that I didn't complete, uh, uh, didn't finish. Um, <clears throat> that I could have added a whole lot to. There's there's a lot out there, but I mean, you know, there's all these different relationships. Um, have you looked into the Robin Hood relationship? I have. So uh, one of the things that's going to separate this uh, this blow up, the Alameda FTX blow up, versus uh, the Three Arrows Capital or Luna um, blow up. Three Arrows blowing up was a hedge fund. And you could probably guess who their counterparties would be other hedge funds or, or, or other big parties, the potential, um, the market participants that, that blew up or when FTX blows up, anybody storing funds on there could have potentially been them. And so if you look in the bottom, right, you'll see, uh, some wrapped Bitcoin assets blew up. You'll see uh, Silvergate, which is holding funds for digital currency group, Robin funds, funds, Robin hoods, funds are being held on um, some other custodian. And what I'm saying is, if you wanted to cause as much uh, damage as possible in the crypto community, you would attack custodians. And because Sam needed more money to, to continue his Ponzi, he s seeked these uh, businesses out 
bought them and then stored their assets on his exchange. Right. Which he, he, went out he was lacing it all together. Which actually means that the other company bought him out because in a lot of instances, he got more money from the other company, more uh, client money from the other company than he did for paying for it. Um, and there really is this question, was the goal to make a very fast Ponzi scheme that would wreck, maybe hide some winnings, maybe think that you can sneak away? Um, it's hard to think you can sneak away in this world uh, from, from something this big, but um, or, or was the goal to to be able to hold on to it, rebuild it, and be able to profit. Like you know, when, when you're holding Robinhood, you know, if, if if you're a big investor in Robinhood, you get a lot of data, you get a lot of information, you can trade off of that data and that information, right? I mean, it, I I think that's the reason why Robinhood exists as uh, you know an exchange that people who don't want to be paying fees go to. There was a couple agendas being played out as we look out on retrospect. You can you can see about seven months ago, Sam really cranked up the lobbying, you know, as if maybe if I can just regulate myself a moat, I can get, I can get through this. The, the one of the precipitating events that caused this uh, this collapse was the leak of Alameda's balance sheet to a crypto reporter on Twitter. No name crypto reporter, just a just a random journalist. Um no one knows who leaked that balance sheet because as a result of that balance sheet leaking, CZ start, he saw how weak Sam was. And my opinion on CZ, I think that he thought Sam's business practices were risky. And I think he wanted to divorce himself from them. And then while divorcing himself from them, everything broke because Sam's business was practiced were risky. I don't think CZ thought he was going to cause this much fallout because Binance right now is offer is having to go bail out. Yeah, or what I he didn't want to just it didn't benefit him to destroy the industry. He's got to go, you know, clean up some firms too. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that a little bit more because I'm I, I'm going to present several hypotheses, and that's that I'll, we'll discuss that then. Um, so Sam Bankman-Fried is under supervision in the Bahamas, so you know, uh, I, I I guess he's captured. Um, you know, we can uh, make a little fun here. Uh, you know, and this down at the bottom, I found this uh, this article. Crypto's biggest cash crash saw a guy playing League of Legends while luring investors. And it talks about him being in a meeting asking for just like gross amounts of money while he's playing a video game. Yeah. <laughs> like this is, like, you know, if you're working with this guy, if you're in the management with this guy and you see behavior like this, activity like this, like that that's a level of OCD or there, there's, there's something, you know, that people should be paying attention to about how, you know, not right just even just little idiosyncrasies are like that right or even but, a quick glance at his balance sheet you, know, <laughs> you put 400 million in it you think someone someone hadn't you can watch some of the inner like so chamath did an interview today said he was approached by sam and when when someone is embraced by the establishment like sam uh it's this cult of personality around him and, and some investors will put up with it but chamath came back with some suggestions as to clean up the comp to make it more investable and Sam told him to, to, to go shove it up his ass. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, over simple suggestions like maybe you should have a board. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe there should be somebody else looking at what you do on a daily basis. But um, yeah, and this is interesting right here, right? Like I, I have this, this, you know, screaming sense of, you know, narcissism coming from, from the inside here, but you know, Look at look at these tweets and tell me what you think. I you know I, I read number two. I'm really sorry again that we ended up here. 
hopefully things can find a way to recover. Hopefully this can bring some amount of transparency, trust and governance to them, whatever that means. Ultimately, hopefully it can be better for customers. You can listen to, or, so if you, Caroline, she's her Tumblr leaked and you can, and she wrote in it like a diary and it was actually what she thought. And you can listen to her reason through her moral arguments. And what she says is the, the good I can do is unbounded to the upside and is the bad I can do is bound un, is bounded by my net worth. So that's exact. It's, it's crazy as if in, in your effort to do good, you can't do more bad in the world. Like it's fundamentally a neurosis. Uh, it's, it's a misunderstanding. This kind of thinking is endemic in our ruling class. Yeah. And I wonder what, what happened first. It's, it's a status thing, right? So if you want to be part of this ruling class, when you go look at the playbook SBF laid out, he had 200 million in foundations. He, uh, FTX foundation sponsored the ivermectin smothering trial. Uh, SBF's mother is, she's got many political action committees, but one's on pandemics, one's, uh, mind the gap, which re it's reason for existing is to stealthily fund money to, uh, democratic candidates. That's said in the Vox article. That's not me saying that. And, um, and good doggy will, will, will get, We'll talk about this more. Uh, hopefully, we'll we'll make it as clear as possible. But um, did did you read the quote? I, I think I had it in a slide earlier. Did you read her thing about cute boys? Yeah, yeah. She clearly she's running around with this crowd. You know what the internet gave me was I can see how people who are not in my group talk about me when I'm not around. Like you can you can kind of sort of put yourself. You can read Caroline's deepest thoughts on Tumblr. She and she is is a poster child for what this class of social class is doing to us. Um, anyway, so uh, yeah, they, they, they both are like Sam and Caroline, uh, like it, it, everything they've said and done um, just screams. Yeah. This is, this is the problem with the elite left. Well, to be yeah. clear, here's exactly what they did. They don't care about crypto. They said as much, they said they're there to make money. Now that's, that's not terrible, but what they ended up doing was they stole money from the crypto community used that money to attack what the crypto community values most that is decentralization it's the reason why the people the reason who live in crypto land that's why they live there because they care about those things and it's it's uh it's really rotten like it's it's really really rotten well and it tells us exactly where the the boundary of the battle is right if you if you allow centralization of your capital the financial engineering class which which really is the uh, the elite of the the, the left wing that have sort of achieved orbit with financial engineering to go above the people doing productive things, mm -hmm. you know, they, they want to be able to gamble with your assets or, or to be able to create something out of nothing, uh, a magic box <laughs> or, or however it is that Sam put it, just, you know, a box that it's not, it's not up to me that people decide that there should be money in that box. I'll just take the money out. Um, so, you know, it's, it's it, no joke, real fashionable it, thinking. It, it, it's it's just real. I don't know. It's just this this quote really. This is an old quote, but I wanted to throw this in here because it it displays the point. The longer I live, the more I notice that self awareness seems only valuable during certain specific parts of dating and before and after your career, which for some people will start around age eighteen, and other people will be delayed by a PhD until year thirty or so. During career trajectory, people only seem concerned with products and success. Self-awareness seems like an unnecessary liability use of time, sadly. Like th that we could ever live in a world in which 
you know, your, your productive time when you are making value for the world that you would think that self-awareness would be unimportant during that. that. That's an amazing statement about how much power has been accrued by this class of people. But you know what? Uh, let's let's start talking about the hypotheses. And you were going into this already, um, you know. And and you know, there, there's the hypothesis that that CZ was really always just sort of setting up FTX and Sam. And I I, I don't subscribe to this one. I, I I guess I don't have any reason to contradict it, except that it doesn't feel consistent with sort of personalities the way things went down. I mean, Binance sort of actually pushed Sam along, you know, saying you know you could build an exchange. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, may, maybe that was to take it down later, but I don't really see, you know, the, the good motivations for that. <clears throat> um, you know, and ultimately, you know, Binance will feel fallout from this, even if even if they've lost no money from investment, which I think they did, right? Uh, but <clears throat> aside from that, um, you know, Binance would want the cryptocurrency exchanges to look like trustworthy agents, and they don't at the moment. They definitely don't. They, um, you know, trusted third party. Uh, seems like a, a pretty toxic phrase at the moment, and it should. And and this is what the old school Bitcoiners say anyway. And it's it's I'm I'm pretty much you know I, I've always been pretty close to to, to that sort of opinion. But um, it, one thing I do want to say about you know going down this road of of CZ's potential involvement is um, I always point to you know this book that James Rickards and and I'm I'm not like a full fan of his. There's a lot of things that I disagree with him about, but this is a really important book because he was brought in by the Pentagon to participate in economic war games, I think in 2009, but you know, just after the mortgage bond collapse. There was this sense that this was the beginning of the unraveling of the world, and so moves wanted to be made now. And you can see from that point, there are kinds of moves all over the world that have been very unique, including like the Stuxnet virus in 2010 that that would only go after Iran, but would go everywhere. And it was huge. It was like 100 times as many lines as most viruses. Very complex, clearly, you know, a military weapon, military-grade weapon. So <clears throat> four zero-day exploits. And this this whole collapse seems like it could be called its own zero-day exploit. Um, so there is this currency war going on. Maybe CZ is playing a part. But it, it may be that it's not like, you know, your most vicious predatory part, but but you know we'll, we'll get to how he reacted. But I just want to point out this is a, an article that people who haven't read, who who are watching this and interested in the topic, may want to go back and read. Um, which is you know, like you can read the title, uh, but there, there's a lot of information in here about how BRICS nations are forming and shaping up, and it's a lot of the world. It's a majority of the world's you know population, and uh, I think a slight majority even of the land. So, you know, it's a, it's a pretty serious thing that we are looking at a world in which there may be a schism away from the, you know, euro petro dollar thing that that casts a net over, you know, the entire world pretty much. But I, I think that Bitcoin will be the thing that wins out in this. I think there are a lot of reasons why. But, um, you know, when you think about the possibility that there is a currency war going on and that there are connections between all of the players. One thing that I would want to point out is when you look at, you know, Bitcoin hash rate, um, and that's the uh, heavier line right here. Bitcoin price is the lighter dotted line. When Bitcoin was heading up, and most of us thought it was going to climb higher than it did, right? It, it you know, uh, topped out a little under seventy thousand, 
or right around 70,000. Um, but what happened is uh, China banned Bitcoin miners right at the moment. You know, when you look at the rainbow chart, right at the moment when you would see the second or the, or the last sort of leg of run up from a typical um, four year cycle. Right. That looks very, very well timed. And here's a possibility that FTX and Alameda had an expectation of that next leg of climb. Maybe that was a point at which they were leveraged. And maybe that began a lot of their troubles. And, you know, it eventually cascaded into everything. But, you know, you can see that that there was selling a Bitcoin ahead of the ban on mining, right? The selling began and then the ban on mining occurred. And then we see the precipitous drop um, in the hash rate, which is the number, you know, the amount of uh, mining going on protecting the Bitcoin. So, um, yeah, so it, I, I just wanted to point that piece of it out. Now, here's another hypothesis, which is that uh, this was all part of pandemic planning. That, you know, if what you wanted was to try to create a world in which you, you could create this new centralized uh, global crypto banking system, you know, maybe what you would do is force the world into hardship. So maybe it's possible that that Sam and Caroline were not really the, the heads of, of the snake. Um, that, you know, they were just they were playing one role. Right, because they were able to, as traders who understood cryptocurrency on a technological level, at least, um, they were able to play that role. But you know, may, maybe, maybe they were in, you know, or playing a role with you know, planning of the pandemic. In fact, if we look at Carolyn's uh, mother's profile at MIT, she has a, she has a focus on the pharmaceutical in, uh, industry and also obfuscation research. <laughs> um, so pharmaceutical industry and obfuscation of information, information warfare. It's very interesting. I don't know. And then, uh, you know, trading as discrete bribery. And I'm going to explain this one through a personal experience. In uh, early 2020, early last year, when I started up my Substack and I started writing articles so that people could see what was really going on with um, with the actual data from like hydroxychloroquine and, and the Simpsons paradox, how it was hidden. Um, somebody that I had met or by phone that I've been connected with, um, through, through a bioinformatics specialist, oddly enough, <laughs> uh, that I'd known years ago in San Diego, but th this person, you know, called me up and he was like, you know, I want to discuss a trade with you. We had discussed Bitcoin and trading, I don't know, back in 2018, but we hadn't talked in three years. And, so he calls me up and, and he starts saying, look, I've got this trade and, and you would be the person to execute this. Okay. That, that sort of makes sense. I mean, I'm, I'm a good trade executor. You know, what, why do you need me if you know what this is though? Right? Like this is worth millions of dollars. And I was like, so this is an arbitrage. Like, no, it's, it's not an arbitrage, but, but like it, it, it's, it's provable that it'll work. And I was like, this is just weird. Um, and, and we, we actually, we talked numbers. Right. And, and we talked numbers in the seven figures. Like he asked me, what would it take for you to step away from what you're doing to do this? And we discussed numbers in the seven figures. So I didn't think of this as somebody bribing me until later on. I think it was an attempted bribe. The reason I decided later on it was a bribe is because uh, my friend JJ Cooey. Uh, do you know who JJ is? Have you seen him? I have not. 
Okay. Um, he, he's one of the original members of Drastic. He was, uh, did you ever see videos of a guy riding a bicycle early in the pandemic, like to and from his university? And he was talking about the papers that were coming out in the pandemic and saying, this doesn't look right. And he would talk through what it was that he read. Oh yeah. I remember vaguely remember those members. Well, he, that was JC on a bike. It's JJ Cooey. And I've gotten to be pretty good friends with him uh, over the past uh, little over a year. Um, we talk a lot and he comes on my show and, um, <clears throat> I, I probably work with him more than anybody at the moment, but he, he was a member of, of this group called Drastic that was doing uh, research into the origins and pushing back against the zoonosis story. Well, uh, somebody sort of pushed their way into the Drastic group who wasn't a researcher and was offering them a day trading, like a, a black box that would oh. send them signals. And some of the people in the group took it. Oh. I'm told, I'm told for anybody out there who knows the names, I'm told that Yuri Diegan took this. And I think that it was, it was basically paying to have your attention shifted from shifted from further topics, right? So that you can only maybe know the one topic you've researched, uh. but you wouldn't be able to dig deeply. Like Yuri sort of, he's, he's a denier of, of antivirals, for instance, uh. as potentially effective. Um, so anyway, uh, JJ was offered this and, and he even like, you know, he looked into it for a few days and like, even like tried it out, you know, and, and, you know, he said, okay, you know, it, it would send you a buy signal and, and then the stock would go up. You would see it. And he was like, you know, I, I could make money. And he even said that the guy told the, um, that one person was kicked off it for taking too much money. And, and they were told like, you know, keep it, keep it at like around 50,000, which is a weird thing to tell people when you've given them a signal box. Right. But uh, JJ told me one of the things about it was like a lot of the stocks were like Chinese stocks listed on American exchanges, mm -hmm. which is to say illiquid stocks. Yeah. And so like, he's telling me this, I'm on the phone with him. I'm like, JJ, you know what this is? This is a bribery scheme. And and I, I put the pieces together at the time and realized that I had been offered that, that that's really what I had been offered with the trading scheme in 2021. But here's the way it works. If, um, if somebody sends you, somebody sends you a signal, you know, buy this stock. So you buy it, maybe you buy a thousand shares and then they buy the market up and push the stock up like, you know, $3. Huh. And then you sell them out and you've made a $3,000 profit. Huh. Right. In other words, they're feeding you money through the financial system using some sort of, uh, some sort of, um, uh, some stock, some security as just a tool because nobody's going to be looking at this one thing. I bet if those guys are pros, they'll turn around and blackmail you with the same information. Uh, maybe, maybe. But the fact that it's so hard to prove that it's ever going on probably also makes it hard to prove it's blackmail also. So, you know, it, it's probably hard to get caught, but hard to blackmail is my yeah. thinking. But maybe, maybe, <clears throat> maybe the communication about it. But, you know, you, you could always say, well, I didn't understand that it was because uh, JJ legitimately, he did not understand that he was being offered a bribe. I did not understand until I heard his story that I had been offered a bribe. And and I, I was a professional trader. It was just, it's a new <laughs> thing. And we should assume, you know, once we've identified this, we should assume that this is probably going on a lot. And when you think about, when you think about Sam talking about the magic money coming out of the box, well, who's putting it there? I mean, all, a lot of these billions of dollars especially the billions that first pumped up Alameda and FTX. Like I said, where would those trading returns come from? It was very hard to trade and do better than Bitcoin. Very, very few people that I've ever talked to did it.
So as I've been reading about this stuff, my understanding is he got after what the, the kimchi arbitrage, the Korean Bitcoin or the Japanese Bitcoin arbitrage. Um, I read a, a little blurb it was, or a little meme. It was some guy who said he worked with him at the time and they actually didn't make that much money. But he was then introduced to the Skype co-founder through his effective autism or effective altruism, <laughs> effective altruism community. <laughs> <laughs> And when, when you think about the effect of altruism, it keeps on coming up. Like maybe the effect of altruism community is is just a group of billionaires trying to reorder the world as the, the, the petrodollar in the industrial age die down. And that's what I suspect it is. Probably more so than a moral framework. Just a group of guys all, all trying to do the same thing. Yeah, it. yeah, I, I think that it, it's it's a virtue signal, right? It it doesn't reflect any real values. It's a mask, yeah. so it's a ready-made mask for a class that you know has been raised to be narcissists already. Yeah. So you know that that's the way I view it. It's hard not to see it, you know, any other way. It's hard to see it in any other way at this point. But you know, it, and another hypothesis, and and these hypotheses they can overlap. Right. There, there's there's definitely overlap between some of these po possibilities. But, you know, this could be an indirect attack on the Bitcoin ecosystem. Yeah, in multiple ways, like one, this could bring in the regulators now. Yeah. Right? When, when tens of billions of dollars fall down in a house of cards, you have the potential to, you know, go to a lot of, of congressional members and say, look, you know, this is gigantic. Everybody's in pain. You've got to regulate, you know, you pass some laws for us. So there could be a lobbying wing already, you know, in force, knocking on doors and walking the halls of Congress right now. And we have freshman Congress members who just came in, though, though, though maybe it's maybe this is part of why the elections were so important, because the incumbents won more seats than we expected. Yeah. <clears throat> and that means that the, the lobbyists know who they're dealing with more than they would have otherwise. So, um, sorry. And, uh, you know, and, you know, a lot of attacks are impossible, right. Or, or very difficult, you know, cracking SHA-256, you know, you can spend all the energy in the sun with the most efficient computers. You're not going to come close. Um, you know, overt means such, such as bans would be unpopular. Um, but you know, maybe, you know, maybe this is why Clinton is always around these people who are sort of growing into new superpowers and um, we'll forget for a moment whether or not, you know, he's reaching for boob. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, you know, Clinton is just, he's a conduit between um, we know he's a conduit between a lot of powers. So um, anyhow, so, you know, lot, lots of power at play, but a, a direct attack on decentralization would be hard doing it through regulation or, yeah, maybe maybe it's either we succeed, either we get the magic kite to fly and create the super entity that is FTX and it takes over the world and it buys Binance and it buys everybody. Or or the kite doesn't fly and then you get the regulators to step in on your behalf. It's the, clearly the regulators are stepping in um, or are going to step in as a result of this. Uh, there's a every the 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 facts we know fit with someone in the old world, old world finance trying to take us down. Just the facts we know, like it would be a reasonable explanation. Um, just the way, uh, the way the, the, ba the balance sheet leaked, which led to blowing everything up, which led to 
um, the regulators trying to push what was a dead bill this session through. Um, it's it's the most this social class of people uh, are. So, for example, Sam uh, just robbed uh, ten billion dollars, or at least 10, around ten billion dollars, and he got a glowing New York Times article for him tonight. Didn't even talk about any crime; just said that he was sorry. Jesse, the Kraken CEO, he he gets slandered, and he can't even the Coinbase CEO can't even get a meeting with the head of the SEC. Like when you give uh, SBF all these favors, you're not giving them to somebody who deserves them, and. Uh, it's it's hard to watch. It's it's uh, ostensibly the SEC is set up to protect retail money, right? That's what we tell ourselves, and that's what right. Well, it's it's much 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 the 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 path that Gary took led us in a much worse situation. It it would be hard to describe a much worse situation. He did regulation by enforcement on domestic exchanges, which means that they were they didn't know what to do. They had the most conservative stuff. They they didn't want to step out of line. That drove all the the retail over to the Bahamas, where there was no regulation, and they lost all their money. Um, it's I don't know how you can consider that any sort of strat what interest is that in and we know whose interest is it's in it's in final financial regulations is used to cement in the guys at the top so they can't get knocked out um and you saw it with uh kevin o'leary of course he was a paid spokesman of ftx he's a he's a shiller you know uh he'll tell you he's a he's here to make money um as if that's amoral i would describe what he is doing as more immoral but that's that's not material um and so anyway, and then the first thing he does, he wants to hop on the plane to go get regulation. That That's socializing the losses, privatizing the profits. He wouldn't have said anything because you have to understand those regulations come at a cost. So if you're if you're retail, if you're just an average guy like me, um, these these nukes and these bankruptcies are kind of good news. Um, another guy gets to get rich. You know, maybe he didn't make it last cycle. Yeah. Bad news in the short term, but but good news in the long term. So, yeah. So, uh, anyway. Uh, well, here's another person um, uh, on Twitter that I found, um, Phil Gibson. I don't know who Phil is, but um, he has some interesting thoughts here. And I, I don't agree with all of them, but he's thinking. He's thinking things through, and he's pointing out, you know, um, <clears throat> he, he thinks uh, Davos, the Davos people and the WEF people, which we know there are connections there, used um, SAM and FTX as a tool for regulatory capture of the entire crypto industry. And if Sam did uh, target Luna and blow it up, then he was at the he was at the moment at which he could come in and scoop, right? So one of two things might be true. Um, you know, uh, Sam and company might have been over leveraged Bitcoin long, and then China um, banning the miners, whoever made that decision may have sank him, may have kept him from completing that mission. Or if he wasn't sunk then, if he was the person who fired the cannon, <clears throat> then he hoped to scoop up all these different entities and to be able to you know, use their assets and gamble with them. But but then where did the money go? Like, right, if, if he wasn't a loser in all of the carnage that was already going on, you know, how did, how did he get lost? No one's real clear on, on where the money went or where it came from or because we're talking about a we're talking about a 10 billion dollar hole here. Like th that's, it's an incredible amount of money um, for no one to know where it went. 
or when I say know where it went, who got rich? Okay. Luna blow up happened. Three arrows capital didn't get rich. Um, and when you were talking earlier, Matt, about trading, a lot of those traders that I, you know, might've been jealous of their gains or at least, you know, been, you know, I didn't get them, but those guys are broke. I saw a guy lose 30 million, have $5,000 to his name. He was keeping it all on FTX. I mean, wow. <laughs> a lot of those guys didn't make it too. So, and you say, well, what happened to the money? And in a sense, the money was never real. Like it's just, so when capital destruction happens at that level, like money didn't, that capital never should have been, it never should have existed. And so there was guys, you know, uh, no, I, I, I don't see it that way. I, I think that, I think that the yield farming invested capital into something that was essentially worthless. Like you know, if, if I have, if I have a million dollars and I buy a piece of dirt for a million dollars, okay, I've done an awful, awful bad trade and I don't have any money left, but it doesn't mean that that money wasn't real. Right. Well, somebody, somebody sucked that money away somewhere, somehow. But you have to, the, so the capital destruction that happened, it, the, the mechanism that was happening is, is it's the inventing of an asset out of thin air. The okay. Other- the, okay. There is some of that that's true, right? Like, <clears throat> and this is why I call it trying to fly the magic kite, because if they can get people to believe in the value of like the FTT token well enough, no matter how much money is actually in the hedge fund, if they get people, you know, to, to fly that kite for them. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to bid up their stock coin, you know, their stock, their coin. And, they can do it themselves and, at their own exchange. You know, that's a subjective value process where that's money that's out of thin air. That's money that's out of thin air. But the money that went in that was like, you know, Bitcoin that was on exchanges, mm-hmm. that was real, right? That's real and that was stolen. Yeah. But there is a there's a portion of this that was just inflated from nothing. And then there's, you know, dollars and Bitcoin going in. And that was something. So there's two pieces to that, right? And, uh, and, and some people got, you know, handed the bubble, the bag and some people, um, you know, so somebody got away with some money. So you're, you're right. We need, we need to be able to track it down. So the story's not over. Um, you know, and, and here, you know, Alameda was buying, you know, Voyager, um, uh, ledger. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so. Alameda was buying everything they could. What happened? The exact mechanics behind the blow up on the Luna blow up. When the Luna blow up happened, they got a bunch of loans recalled and they had spent that money on venture capitalist endeavors. So in, investing in Ledger, investing in 160 companies. Um, well, did they do that while playing video games? <laughs> probably so. Because that, that's expert mode. <laughs> so when I say that we don't know where the money went, like there's a all right. So what I'm the, the big question we all have is clearly there's either a mentor or a power structure or a, a social group or a meetup that these guys are all hanging out because they all do the same playbook. You know, you don't end up with 136 entities and two million dollars in your own foundation. He he had never run an exchange before. You know, he was just some some 30 year old. Yeah. And, you know, got- and, and so this is an interesting part of the discussion. I'm going to show I'll, I'll start this over, but I, I, want, I want to play a couple of videos just because like there's there's multiple ways to look at it. These are very smart. Twenty nine and thirty and, and whatever. You know, I don't know what everybody's age is who, who is in that pool. But um, let's let's listen to some of them talk for a moment. Sort of back in whatever it was, June or July about like, should we even do yield farming at all? Uh, and I was kind of like, 
oh, I don't know, this whole thing seems like weird and it, aren't there risk, risks and like what if these platforms get hacked and like it's like such a huge pain operationally uh, and, you know, accounting wise and all of that. Uh, and but yeah, I lost that argument, I guess. And <laughs> <laughs> now we're in the lab that whole summer. For me, a lot of it was just about sort of, uh, yeah, re readjusting my expectations and uh, being open to whatever happened. Uh, I think like every... Yeah, she, she's no longer even making decisions at that point, right? This was a smart person who had a reasonable idea about what was ordinary in trading. You know, she was a good trader, but I'll, I'll let this continue. Week or so, uh, something like weirder than the previous week would happen. Uh, and I was like, okay, I was like, and just like mentally, you know, adjusted myself to, you know, okay, we're farming comp. Uh, and then it's like, oh, now we're farming these things that are like foods. And then now we're farming these like whatever weird like meta food things. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I did manage to get, yeah, get away from my initial skepticism and, and of embracing the mindset of like, great, gonna like go out and look for like whatever, like, the weirdest, dumbest thing people are talking about today. And like, that's going to be the thing I'm working on today. After hearing her talk and reading her Tumblr, she, you can tell that she knows what she's doing, or at least I suspect you can tell she knows what she's doing is wrong and that there's a moral problem with it. And that's why she's so preoccupied with explaining it away. You know, she talks about how she has to get comfortable with risk and, you know, she'll, she'll just, you know, flip this coin as many times as possible, do as much good in the world. Yeah, it, it, it's weird. It, it, it's tough to know exactly what's going on there, right? But, it, it, and, and, you know, maybe she's talking herself into it. You know, like like she would have known, but she talks herself a step at a time into it. Perhaps it, it it's hard to know. But you know, I I I wanted to play some of this. Like we're going to listen to another one here, and I you know I think there are multiple takes that are wrong takes. I think, but we'll talk about why they're wrong. We'll listen to this one. Who the fuck has mentored SPF? Where did he come from? He was a washout from Jane Street. When anyone tried, I'm going to go ahead and stop that there. That's not true. He was, he was a good trader. He was a respect, you know, the reason that, that a bunch of Jane street people went with him is because he went off and knew how to make money. He was a good trader there and he was a good trader right afterward too. Pin SBF down on where he made his money. You can't get a cogent answer. You needed real money upfront in the place on this country crypto arbitrage to make big money. No one in their right mind would ever give you the money. So who funded this trade for you? Normally when people start companies, they get venture capital money, and those venture capitalists own a piece of it. Did you get venture capital money? I, not for Alameda. And what we ended up doing was basically cobbling together lines of credit and, and other things from various sources, trying to sort of snowball and be able to, to, to build on ourselves. You can't get a real answer. And his partner is a guy So I, I want to say that that's possible. He, he may have started with, you know, they may have pulled credit card debt together. You know, I, I don't even know how much credit card debt, like, you know, a 25 year old who's made, I, I don't know how much money he made at Jane Street, but let's just say, you know, somewhere over a million dollars in three years. Uh, I've heard he was a good trader, um, you know, and, and so maybe, maybe he and, and a couple of people are able to, to get, you know, $200,000 a piece or something to get started. And then it just, and then it did snowball from there, but I, I don't know, maybe it was a few million 
and maybe some other people put some money in. Maybe maybe some of the people from Jane Street did. Gary Wang, and no one can find shit on Gary Wang. You look up Sequoia stuff. There's a picture of Gary Wang of his back facing a computer. Gary Wang is the same CTO or the chief technology officer of FTX. Allegedly, they hired a chief regulatory officer who was part of a car cheating scandal, and his name is Dan Freeberg. And if you get on Dan Freeberg's LinkedIn, there's no mention of his time at, a, at the poker site. To be head of regulatory at FTX and have this in your past and cover it up, who the fuck runs FTX? Okay, that's pretty fair. Yeah. <laughs> you got a guy who sleeps on a futon at the Bahamas, who's chief regulatory officer, Oh, okay, I will say this. Uh, when I worked at D. Shaw and we were going through the uh, the post long term capital management warfare, and, and just to set this up for people, I, I ran the I was the trader of the largest bond account at what was, you know, sort of the second largest. I, I guess we were the second largest quant fund I think in the world at that time, next to long term capital. And people thought we were more like them than we turned out to be. And long term capital management blew up. And then everybody's looking at us, right? Like, oh my God, does that mean that they're going to blow up? And I think, I think we were down, like when long-term capital management blew up, like down 4%, maybe we got down like 10% or something like that. I don't know the actual numbers. So nobody quote me on that. And, and it would have been a positive year had, had, you know, um, had we just been allowed to hold on to the trades and let them come back. But that's another story. But so we, we were sleeping under the desks. <laughs> that, that's actually not that, you know, that that's not that weird for that environment. So to see somebody by the desk, you know, sleeping on the beanbag, that's no, that that's that's dedication to the job, actually. His hands all over a poker cheating scandal. He met his partner at a summer math camp in Canada. Okay, I don't know why that bothers him at all. That just means that they were hard studying high school he, students. He's a veteran short seller, man. He's probably from New England. He's just used to talking a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who the fuck are you? None of these people could run a lemonade stand, let alone an exchange. The fact that his, his dad's involved in law or teaching at Stanford Law, I think is more ground cover for what I really think is going on. What has SPF done? He hasn't done shit in his life. He can't explain what he's done. And he puts up billboards of himself. He's the number two donor to the Democratic Party. This is a 30-year-old living in the Bahamas operating offshore. Why? What's your cost? And on the other side, you have Tom Brady and Giselle doing their ads. Everything reads like this thing is a complete scam. Okay, so he's got he's got a lot of things right here. He's got some wrong takes and some right takes. It's just like the pandemic. You really have to sort and sift and 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 do a good job of separating the facts from everything else. Um, but you know, he he is right. You know, to look to look toward what the connections are. You know, it may there may have been a lot of connections made through the parents to get two people who were able to be a professional class of doing some things. And, you know, I, I, I don't know what the deal is with the, the poker cheating scandal guy, but that is, that's a little bit weird. Um, let's see. Uh, okay. Well, anyhow, I, 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 I wanted to share that just cause I, I, I feel like people are looking that people know that something is wrong, right? Um, people know something's wrong, but people aren't necessarily going to know what it is, but this is the point in time when, um, yeah, we, we've mostly talked things out. So, you know, uh, let, let, let's just take a look at uh, some of the funny things people are putting on the Internet about all this, because who knows what to think. But 
Uh, I, I like the one on the right. That's pretty good. <laughs> That's a dad joke right there. <laughs> Did this actually, this, this happened, didn't it? Yeah, I understand it happened. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness! By the way, we didn't even say the the most one of the some of the more fantastic stuff that happened in this thing. So I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. I got a a friend who lost money in the Voyager collapse, which was during the Luna thing. FTX. So he lost his money, and then FTX bought him out. Then FTX blew up, so he lost his got his money stolen again. And then Sam stole about four hundred million, or some hacker stole four hundred million dollars from FTX's treasury as it was blowing up. So he got his money stolen three times. See, this is why I think, in terms of bribery scandals, this is exactly what I was thinking about. It's like some sort of way to pass money through the system, even if it wasn't your money, right? But maybe what they did was they cobbled all these exchanges and and crypto entities together to create a, a black box. That was just meant to, um, you know, put money in the right hands for whatever purposes, whether it was political purposes, you know, making sure that uh, the Democrats stayed on, you know, well, you know, got into, uh, you know, total control of presidency and Congress, and then to maintain it in this last election, which didn't feel like it was going to happen. I mean, gosh, you know, when when you have that much inflation, when you have so many issues going on. Um, uh, and a, a, not a particularly popular precedent. Uh, you don't think that that they're going to hold on to everything, right? But it it you know there's a lot that's weird in the world right now. Yeah. So um, another thing to note is that when he did steal the money at the very end, there was a function called on the Ethereum blockchain called Rug Pool All. There's been a couple uh, rumors saying that there was a software backdoor built in. It was actually verified in New York Times that he he used that to bypass the auditors. So it, this appears to be a bespoke fraud from the beginning. Okay, so mm. I say it appears. So you look at his pitch deck, you know, and the, the financial mm -hmm. numbers are all crazy. Um, his story it just explains, you know, a handful of million Uh I really do think the effect of altruist network is more of like a, a financial. It's a group of guys trying to accomplish something with moral cover and they're, they're all super rich. And so the plans get cooked up in there. I believe just, yeah. Way. You know, almost every guru crowd is something like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it's just, it's the best way, you know, you, you have this sort of fake spirituality and, you know, I've, I've gone to, you know, some of their sort of meetups and conventions and whatnot. And I always look around and, and I'm just like, like, d does everybody like believe in all this stuff? Like, 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 does everybody take this seriously? Really? Um, I, I yeah, I've seen, I've seen a lot of it and, it, and it, it's just so, I don't know, it feels so obvious, but but, you know, it's hard to blame somebody when they or it's hard to point a finger to somebody who's virtue signaling. I mean, maybe it's starting to get easier. Right. Like, just like I said, um, you know, when you look at, you know, names like USAID, uh, Eco Health Alliance, right? the people who are naming things in terms of virtue are the people who are trying to use that virtue. Yeah. So, you know, when you see social capital, when you see effective altruism, um, it's part yeah. of the same. It's it, radical it's, centrism. Run the other way from this crap. 
it's not even it's virtue signaling, but it's particular virtues is this handful of crap that keeps on coming up. And and we keep on trying to name it as, you know, what is this power structure? It's it's just class consciousness at, at the globalist level of the richest people on earth is one way to understand it. Right. And and basically um these values that they signal, uh, the expression of those values has been has been part of the gatekeeping at the elite universities. Yeah. So, you know, all like all these people are already they're trained to go along with it, right? Um, whether they believe it or not, whether it's actually, you know hypnosis or brainwashing or whatever, or if they just know to go along with it. So it's a, I, I see this all, all through the world in the past or all through society in the past two years, you know, you, there's, it's obvious propaganda. You say to yourself, no rational person or any person thinking about it for more than two minutes would think it. But the truth is, is that when there's that much propaganda floating around in a group, it like bends consensus. And yeah. Like sometimes, yeah, they do believe it. You know, yeah. sometimes they really do. And it's, it's kind of hard to sift through. Well, and that's why the school systems were made the way they were. You know, um, Frederick the Great, he was a genius, and he recognized the ability to turn schools into brainwashing factories so that the propaganda did become uh, consensus. And that's how he was able to make an army. You know, he, unlike, unlike England, Portugal, Spain, France, Holland, he never had, you know, Germany, Prussia never had reserve currency. Right. They didn't have the boats that were going to the east and making all that money. He had to come up with a different way to compete. And he did. He had the most efficient possible armies and he created them through brainwashing. So, you know, that's been something that's been in play. And we saw it appear uh, as far as I'm concerned, you know, that atmosphere that was created through that schooling system, which, by the way, was exported to not only the U.S. and Canada, but Japan. Right. All these important players in World War Two. You know, you have these brainwashing factory school systems and eventually it's everywhere in the world, right? Just about. But um, yeah, there, there are definitely people drinking the Kool-Aid. Um, I just want to point this out. Like, you know, there are going to be the people who come in and say, well, you know, we all we all knew that everything in crypto was meaningless anyway. You know, and Alex Berenson jumps in and of course he has this giant fan base from pushing back against the pandemic. But it, it's clear that he, he doesn't know anything like there's, there's no actual critique in these messages when you go and read them, um, you know, on his feed. Uh, but it's, it's, it's just like two guys like expressing their biases and talking about how they specifically question people and push people out of hiring and their circles who wouldn't like call everything like, like Bitcoin a scam. So, um, anyway, it, that's not the takeaway from this. There's nothing in this, in, in what has happened. There's nothing about it <clears throat> that has anything to do with the value proposition of Bitcoin, except that if people didn't keep their Bitcoin on exchanges, if they held their own keys, then none of this could have happened. And it's the only thing it's that that's really, I know that no one's going to want to hear it, but the Bitcoin was made to attack fractional reserve banking. This was a fractional reserve banking failure. Um, it, it, everything that happened, happened in balance sheets off chain. This is all trad five stuff. Um, accounting problems. Uh, uh, it was outright fraud, but that's where the fraud happened. Um, and so uh, the you don't have bank, norm, normies aren't used to bank runs, okay? Because banks for the past 20, 30, 40 years, 50 years had uh, access to the Federal Reserve's uh, discount rate. So if it ever got bad like this and it was about to blow up, they'd go get some money from the Fed. But crypto with the with the one aspect or the with the singular aspect of there's a limited amount means that and you can't print anymore 
means that companies actually blow up. Now you have an entire generation of quote financial professionals that have never either blown up or knew it was a problem. Um, and you also have a generation of, uh, of, you know, normies depositing stuff that didn't know blowing up was something that happened. So they didn't know how important self-custody was. And when you look at it, so those juicy interest rates that they were offering there, um, they weren't even that juicy. They were probably six, 7%. Uh, well, about three out of five of those custodians blew up. That's a high level of risk. You could uh, not uh, participate in that risk just by self-custodying your Bitcoin. It's hard to explain to somebody why it's so important if there's no, nothing blowing up. But now that stuff is blowing up, you say, well, you, we have a solution to that. You self-custody your Bitcoin and, and you're good. Um, it, it protects you from the blowups, but the blowups have to happen to some degree. There is no world where, where there's, there's no... Uh, choice with no pain. The blowups have their benefits. So if you're a college student, you know, looking to get into crypto, you you have the opportunity to buy cheap Solana. You know, right. if, if people hadn't been miseducated, we wouldn't have a need for them. But um, like, yeah, yeah. At this point, uh, in order for people to be educated, the blowups have to happen. Um, but you know, Taz asks, why do people not hold their own keys? Convenience. Well, part of this is is the training. You know, part of the brainwashing process is. You know, I talked about gold. Right, being held in in bank vaults. And by the way, if if there were ever a need for a precious metal to be used, and if people go, well, all the gold's in vaults, so we'll use silver, then the people with golden vaults would actually start releasing the gold out into the world, and then they would be able to buy into the currency, and they would even be able to inflate the currency supply at a controlled rate, just like they do with the dollar. That's part of the beauty of the position that they put themselves in by taking, you know, so much of the world's gold and putting it in a few vaults, right? It's a second reinflation of their of their monetary power. So they actually have a backstop in the current system, but they they recognized how important that was, which is part of the reason why they 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 arranged like in the stock market, you you don't really have your keys to your stocks. In fact, there's like you know this these massive holding companies or, or just one or something like that in the U.S. That, that technically owns everybody's stocks. You know, you don't, you don't take them off of uh, off of exchanges in, in, in the same way. People just get used to getting on, um, you know, interactive brokers or Charles Schwab or or Robinhood or whatever, and they make trades and it's, it's just there, right? So yeah, Taz, you say, why do people not hold their own keys? It's largely convenience um, and they, they haven't had to live in a world, number one, where they could do that and number two, where it would, where it would protect them if they did. It's it's a question of trust. Do you trust the banking system? And to trust the banking system, you have to trust the money printers because that's how you interact with the banking system. Or do you trust yourself? Now, to put that trust in yourself is daunting, but you know anything. It's it's worth. That's why it's worth doing. Is because the benefits are so great. Um, people aren't used. It's crazy because if I gave you a million dollar bill and said, "Do you want this?" and "Can you hold on to it?" you would hold on to it. You would know where to put it. You would. You would at least try to rise to the occasion. You wouldn't say, no, let me give it away. <laughs> um, like, I think people are capable of, of valuing or cherishing a piece of paper. It's just that they're not used to, perhaps they don't see the benefit. I don't know. Um, well, training you know, habits, habits are hard to break. And we've been trained into a certain set of habits and people will have to sort of rewrite their own software. But, you know, people remember what the, what, Bitcoin is and what its purpose is. And this scandal is not about what Bitcoin is. And that, that's going to be the wrong take 
that's made by a lot of people in this, but, you know, try to learn as much as you can and educate people out and, and to understand, no, this, this event, this is about, it's about theft. It's about over centralization of, uh, of this, you know, corner of the financial world that had developed. Um, and, and it could be an attack on the new financial system, or it could be an attempt to use the new financial system, uh, the cryptocurrency world to, to float their, their magic kite to create the new, you know, global financial currency or community or, you know, whatever the, the WEF might want to, to control. If, if that's, you know, we, we saw the connections. I mean, that doesn't mean that's exactly who's behind it, but you know, we, we see the same sorts of things pop up over and over again. Well, um, let's go ahead and, and, and wrap up. Is there anything you want to say before we, uh, we wrap things up, Mike? Um, not a lot. I just hope that all your viewers, uh, learn how to self custody Bitcoin. The thing is, is that your money is your interface for the world. If you want something beyond a friend or family member to do or give you something, you have to, you have to use money. And as, as it being such an important tool in your life, you should probably spend some time to, to get to use it and get to know it. And I'm just, I just encourage people to go ahead and, and try to do that with Bitcoin. Yeah. And time has been, has been tough, but uh, I do want to, at some point, have a live stream or a zoom meeting or something, especially with our Bitcoin community, we have 180 something members in there. And, um, and, you know, whether it's with them or with a larger number of people, I mean, gosh, you know, if we got into a zoom meeting, if everybody gave me their, their public key, you know, I'd send everybody like $2 of Bitcoin, especially if they'd never had any Bitcoin before, if they want to, you know, download a, a wallet to put on their phone and see how it works. And then to see how to look up a transaction and to see, you know, um, just all, all the steps in that whole process so that they know, you know, you give away your public key because that's how people give you money, but you, you keep your, your private key and, and you, you can even keep your public key private to a degree, you know, to as, so far as you want, if you don't want people to track your, your account and that's perfectly fine also, but, uh, or you may keep multiple addresses. That's what I do. I have, um, I, I don't know the number I, I may have 20 different addresses. <laughs> Do you know how many you have? Uh, yeah, I try to just use them once and, and keep on churning them out. Um, the, some of the newer software, so Sparrow has like bespoke address handling. Uh, so I don't have my hands on that software, but I, I don't use it personally because I have a system. So, but anyway, you should look into it. All right. Well, everybody, thanks for watching. Um, you know, uh, you know, please, uh, if, if you're not subscribed to one of our channels, subscribe now. Uh, go ahead and press that button. Um, you know, maybe look, take a look down at, at our sponsors or or go visit the Substack uh, if you're new to Rounding the Earth. But I hope people learn something and are thinking about, you know, what's going on with this. And I hope that we've presented it it well. There's not enough information yet to, to know for certain what's happened, but it certainly looks like this is a very, very large event that has taken place. It was planned as a large event is what it appears to me and to... Um, to at least some of the people that that I communicate with, um, as I floated these theories, um, you know, I, I've only gotten more facts that seem to confirm there was a plan for something big. This was not just an event that happened, or and it was not just an ordinary Ponzi scheme. There was something more going on here. But what one message I do want to get out is contagion is still rolling around in the crypto industry. If you have any uh, crypto with a custodian on an exchange or anywhere, you need to recall it back as soon as possible in self-custody. We're not through this thing. More exchanges are going to fall. That's good advice. Well, hey, thank you, Matt. Thank you, everybody. 
We'll, Thank uh, you, Mike. We'll see you later.